0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Todorovic, joined by this guy, some bloke called Dr. Matt. How are you, Matty? Oh,
1: so I should say something, yeah. not yeah. thumbs up. Well, Thanks. people who maybe are watching saw the thumbs up, but those who are
0: listening on a podcast... <laughs> wouldn't have right so great segue (laughs) you can watch us do these long form episodes if you go to our youtube channel so type in dr matt and dr mike onto youtube and you you can watch us you can watch us do these podcasts but you can also go and watch the what 600 odd other videos that we have on our youtube channel covering all aspects of The the human body we've got over 600 videos pretty good so covering every organ system, a bunch of disease states, a number of drugs, everything you need to know for your first three years of a health-based program at university. But today's a podcast, and the podcast is going to be a- an overview of the renal system of kidneys. But before we begin, I do want to just highlight that, dear listener, we don't ever ask anything from you. and Except it- to Listen except to listen and to maybe give us a five-star review and also send us an email telling us how amazing fan, we are. Fan, fan mail. Yeah, we need a lot of fan mail too. But apart from that, we don't ask much. And what we're asking you here is nothing in particular, but if you like, you can become a member of the Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike Medical Podcast Club. And that is simply via the podcast. So if you go to the podcast, you'll see that at the bottom of each episode and even on the podcast site itself, it gives you an option to become a member for $7 a month. And for that $7, you get uh, ad-free listening, early access and bonus episodes. And, Have we bought a building for this club? Uh, no, but we can, uh, we can meet at some pub and play pool and just talk about how the body works, I suppose. But that's not what you get for the $7. However maybe we'll do another tier and people pay more money and we catch up and play pool and drink beer. Uh, but that anyway, that's a possible tier in the future. Uh, apart from that, uh, feel free to send us emails. At the end of this episode, we'll be reading out... We've got a few. Emails. Yeah, we've got a number of really great ones. Uh, that's going to be at the end of the episode. So send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com or you can just go to our website, drmatt.com.au and from there you can... Contact us, send us an email, or you can access us on social media, basically access me on social media. This what are you trying to say, Michael? Well, you don't use social media. I use email. Okay. Back from the 1987. So, Is that social media? At uh, Dr. Mike Todorich, at D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C on all the platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, or X, Threads, I'm on Threads now, anyway, a whole bunch of stuff. I think that's enough that's of a, the- that's,
1: This should go at the end.
0: How, housekeeping. No, 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 no. Because we need to get people early. We do two-hour episodes, and I think people go, I'm sick of listening to these turds talk so long that um, they don't listen to the end. They just yeah. listen to the start where we talk about all the amazing aspects of the human body. Anyway, we're five minutes in. Let's talk about the renal system, right. also known as the genitourinary system, but mainly the urinary system because I'm not talking about the genitals today. So However- The renal it, system? The renal system. You could just say renal system. Uh, Where do you want to begin? At the start. We can frame
1: what we'll be covering covering today in this. All right. I'm not going to say how long it is because we really don't know how long it will go for.
0: Uh, Every time we say, we lie. I'll begin. To begin, the renal system comprises of two kidneys, two ureters, one bladder, and one urethra. Okay. There we go. That's a great overview, don't you think? They're the major structures. to so repeat the, that. Okay, two, two kidneys, yep. two ureters, one bladder, one urethra. Okay, right? and
1: possibly some blood vessels and <laughs> some nerves as well. Yeah,
0: and lymphatics. Yep. Yeah. Okay, but I thought that was a given since all tissues of the body pretty much require those things.
1: But this is a special blood vessel network because it's bringing blood in for filtration, not just as tissue perfusion.
0: True, very true. But before we jump into that, where do we find... Let's just talk about the kidneys themselves, right? So how big are they? Like the size of a clenched fist, you reckon? 140 grams. All right. Clenched fist. Is that how heavy your hand is? <laughs> your, your fist is significantly larger than my fist. Yeah. So that means your kidneys are larger than mine? I don't think it works like that. You're a bigger dude than me. You probably are. So 140, 150 grams, size of a clenched fist, where are they? Because I think a lot of people think your kidneys sit a lot lower yeah, than they true. actually do. Yeah. They're quite high up. Yeah. But they're at the back. At the back.
1: Uh top of the bottom of the rib cage. At All the, right. At the back. So if you look at your ribs, the floating ribs twelve and eleven and twelve, they're sitting
0: anterior to that, ventral to that. So, they're your bottom two ribs. Yep. So, if you feel your bottom two rib, ribs, your kidneys are going to be sort of within and in a way protected by those bottom two ribs. Not yeah. really protected because in actual fact, they can be a bit more of a threat than of a benefit sometimes. We'll talk about well, that If you break in a the rib. If the rib breaks, it can sort of slice the kidneys open. So, they're sitting at what? At the 11th and 12th rib height. Well,
1: they're different height. They're, their location is slightly different because of another organ.
0: Okay. So, what's the height difference?
1: So the right is lower than the left because on the right side of your body you have a big uh, fat piece of viscera called the Bat. liver.
0: Oh, okay, sorry, called the liver. So the liver's pushing the right one down. Yep. So that's the top of that kidney's at about the 11th rib. No, 12th, 12th rib. rib yep. And then the left one's at about- 11 and twelve. 11th, 12th, okay. And so if we have a look at the I bottom think, aspect, I think, it's like L3-ish.
1: I think ballpark, the hilum, which is the entry point for- the blood vessels and the ureter
0: to come out yeah. is at about L1. Okay. And the, one. and the bottom sits at around about lumber three ish. Hmm. So they're, okay. So, and I don't know if you learned this, but the 12, 6, 3, did you learn that? 12, yeah. 6, 3 rule? So 12 centimeters long, six centimeters wide, three centimeters thick. So that's how you can sort of remember the dimensions of the kidneys. Like it. And I, I like what you said about the hilum. So the hilum is, if you were to have a look at the kidney as a bean, right, bean shaped, that the inward curve, like the most acute angle concave. curve, the concave part, uh, that's called the hilum. And that's where all the stuff basically enters and leaves. Yep. So that's where you've got uh, your arteries and veins and lymphatics and nerves and the ureter. Brilliant. Right. Um, and if we look at the kidneys, it's surrounded by this pretty tough capsule. And fat. And fat, so-called perirenal fat. Can I tell you a story about perirenal fat? Is it about a marathon runner? Oh, here we go. Is it the story you were going to tell? I don't know one. Right, but so just, that I, was quite a
1: coincidence, was But, wasn't there? but I, I knew that in <laughs> marathon runners, you can lose that fat and then the kid, kidneys move around. Cool. So, no point telling the story. <laughs> Jesus.
0: <laughs> okay. So, was yeah. Was it actually about a. It was literally, I was going to actually. Well, was it about a marathon runner? Well, because. Like a I particular like to, person? Because I like to tell stories where there's a setup and people get, you know, there's some buy into it and then they're on the edge of their seat and there's a climax and then they're like, wow. But no, you basically said the start, middle, and finish of the entire story. Save time. Yes. Save time. Yes. Some people can work away that structural fat that sits around the kidneys as opposed to just the functional fat that we use around our ass and our legs that we burn for energy. So would
1: that be rapid weight loss or long-standing weight loss?
0: I would say long-standing. So it's like the last thing you lose when you've got nothing else to lose. If you're not replenishing those uh, structure, uh, those functional stores, then yes, you could end So why would you have fat around your kidneys for? Well, because we are talking about 11th and 12th rib, right? Floating ribs. Underneath that, you've just got the flank of your back, right? The soft, squishy part of your back, which means it's very subject to damage. So right now, so if I wanted to
1: punch you... So physical damage?
0: Yeah, if I wanted to punch you in the back where your kidneys are, I could effectively punch and... Is that a thing in boxing? Some sort of trauma to your kidneys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: And So they actually go after the kidneys. And liver, Kidney punch.
0: And liver punch. but From the front. So, or you can do it from the back as well. No, liver front. But if you're thinking about the kidneys, it's not protected very well. Um, you know, your brain's protected by your skull, your heart and your lungs are protected by most of that rib cage and your sternum. You've got other structures protected by other areas that sit quite deep, not your kidneys. So it needs this perirenal fat, and it's pretty hard. This fat, it's very dense. So it's there as a protective mechanism. But so again, it's there
1: for mechanical, but also temperature.
0: Yeah, so it can be, yes, exactly. Uh, and
1: also movement. Anchorage,
0: yeah, that's right. So like a lot of uh, connective tissue, anchor points.
1: So, But, but like you said, there's got a, a fascia that wraps around it and I think that also wraps the adrenal glands mm. with it. So that is all in one and that's why. But then we spoke about this recently that the adrenal glands weren't really seen as separate organs for a long time because um, I guess the early anatomists and those who looked into the body – Thought probably because it was all wrapped up in one that the adrenal glands was part of the kidney, but not being the
0: case. And you told us on a previous, I think, on a Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's A to Z of the human body, which I recommend everybody listen to. They're our shorter episodes where we go through a textbook and go through every single term in that textbook. I think we recently went through adrenal gland mm. and you spoke about the embryological origin being different to that of the kidneys. Yeah. So they sort of originated different places and came together, like you and I. <laughs> I'm the adrenal it's gland. I'm full of energy. Well, you're the ma- you're adrenal mandala, let's say. A- and you're the kidney full of piss. So- full of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. All right, so what else do you want to talk about before we... Discuss functions, because we will go into the micro internal anatomy of the kidneys, but we're probably going to do that towards the end. Do you want to start talking about some of the functions? Because In a second. Well, we, we've had a
1: research assistant for this week. Oh, okay. Last week we had Ben. Yes. From Connecticut. Yes. This week we have Caleb. Wonderful. Where's Caleb from? Caleb is from Canada. He's just finished a biology, a biology degree. Awesome. And he is now applying to medical school.
0: That's awesome. Congratulations, Caleb.
1: And so he did a bit of uh, research for us on the history of uh, milestones, renal system understanding. Awesome. So how did we better scientifically understand possibly what the kidneys do and the internal structures of the kidney?
0: All right, so what do we got? What did, what did uh, Caleb provide us?
1: Well, we know one of the, the most popular or well-known anatomists in pre-modern times – was the Roman anatomist called Galen. Yes. So Galen was pretty good with his anatomy at that point. But remember, a I lot of- better than you? Definitely. It would be hard.
0: But he was wrong. You're never wrong.
1: <laughs> no, well, anyway. So Galen, I think, did a lot of his work with animals. Okay. So not a lot on human autopsies and so forth. Although, so- Although he was, I think, a surgeon for- the emperors and Pigs. the and the um, g- gladiators.
0: Sure, it wasn't a vet,
1: so so I'm guessing he probably would have seen some pretty
0: horrific internal structures, yeah,
1: but maybe he didn't have time to do. Well, it wasn't of,
0: illegal at, illegal at the yeah, time, so to, maybe uh, he
1: just had to quickly peer in and go, "Oh, that looks like something."
0: Ah, uh, so he's waiting for some gladiator to have their viscera falling out of their abdomen and go, "Oh." That looks yep. different to a pig's. But that's pigs right. and humans are pretty similar. True. Except one's on all fours and the other one's... <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> the other one's a pig. <laughs> <laughs> one's on all fours and the other one's on two legs. Right. So for that one up.
1: <laughs> so anyway, um, so Galen thought that the kidney worked as a big sieve. No, it's not that So, well. <laughs> so basically what happened is the kidney would be like... Um, uh, a storage device yeah. that a blood vessel came into, filled it up, and had to go through like a coffee,
0: right. um, yeah, percolator, yeah,
1: which then would drain through as urine, and then the ureter would take it to the bladder. Right. Okay. So that was the, the the understanding until we came to Vesalius, who was probably the more modern anatomist. So, literally from, from rena- Renaissance onwards. So he. Um, said no, it's probably not so much true. There's probably more stuff to this kidney than just it's just a big sieve.
0: Well, I think that is probably, I mean, obvious considering well, you it look is at now. The kidneys. And I mean, I think, and we, we will get to this point, but I think a really cool fact to state from the outset is that we all think that your kidneys produce pee, and that <laughs> that you know that's its job is to to make urine, but that's a byproduct of what it does. Right. Urine is actually the byproduct of the kidney's function. It's like saying the the function of a factory is to produce carbon dioxide, right? It's not. It's the function of the factory is to do a range of things, but its byproduct is carbon dioxide. Right. So uh, it's the same for the kidneys. So, in actual fact, there's a multitude of functions, but one which we'll get to. Yes. But one important point that I really, and we'll get back to it, is that your kidneys are really metabolically hungry and hungry for blood not to eat and ingest per se even though it it does take a lot of energy of the body but it requires the blood for that filtration process because one of the most important roles of the kidneys is to take the blood itself and all the products in the blood and sort of weigh it up and determine what do we need to keep what do we need to throw away so unlike Galen and what well, who was it vesalis Vassalis who thought that you basically push this fluid or blood into this filter and it all goes through and you pee it out. In actual fact, the kidneys will filter around about 180 litres of blood every day and but only pee out 1% 100%. of that. Yep. So that's important because it sounds like a really inefficient process but it must be done in order to really determine a nice tightly homeostatic range of all of these substances which will get through. Yep. So that's super important because if the kidneys don't work very well, you can get sick very quick. Correct. Yep. Right? yep. So what, what do you want to focus on now? So Caleb had some other information for us? Yeah, this
1: is just the history. So then we went into Eustachia. Oh, yes. Let me guess, the Eustachian tube? Well, not this particular one. He did other things. I a think different he did a, Eustachia. Oh, I think it's the same guy, but oh. um, he did probably the whole body anatomy, but in reference to the kidney they started to develop a better understanding of the internal anatomy of the kidney not just a homogenized organ that was you know all the same yeah it had it was different microstructures to it and so i think he started to illustrate that it had things like the calyces the blood vessels that would go in and then break off into smaller parts the collecting ducts yeah. the pelvis and then once we started to develop Better quality microscopes, so then we went to Marcello, Marcello Malpa, Mal, Malpigi. So he Marcello Malpighi. So he in 16, 1666, he um, discovered the glomerulus, which is the ball of yarn. I guess you'd say the starting point of the filtrate. Yeah. So where the blood vessel wraps up in this big ball of yarn, and then the filtrate, so the plasma comes out of the blood essentially. And then we moved to 1842 where we have probably a fairly well-known English surgeon anatomist, which is William Bowman.
0: Oh, Bowman's capsule.
1: And he did a lot of work with injecting the kidney, probably in blood vessel and up the ureter Excuse to, me? To, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: to work out um, more the intrinsic nature of the nephron. Right. Okay. Which is now the the working horse or the working unit of the kidney, right? The nephron. The nephron. Yes. That's so right. we really need this structure to do the job that the kidney does. So we approximately have a million, you said earlier, a million nephrons I don't think per we did. kidney. Didn't you say that start? i would never said anything about okay. nephrons, no. Okay, well, there you go. Okay. So are we talking about nephrons now? We can do that now. Okay. So that's a bit of history. And that's all thank you to Caleb.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Caleb. That is awesome. I think it's important to understand that because if we look at the nephron, which is going to be... I mean, most of the function of the kidney is happening at the nephron and we haven't really spoken about what the nephron is. But if you watch the video of this, we will have a nephron appear up on the screen if so you can have a look at. Now, the nephron, like Matt said, it is the functional unit of the kidney. You have around about 800,000 to a million per kidney. And if you were to take that kidney... And chop it down the middle and have a look. In what way? Sort of opening it like a book. So you do a sagittal section. Sagittal. So you cut it into right and left? Yep. So right and left, open it up and look inside. You'll see that there's two major aspects of the kidney, the cortex and the medulla, right? The cortex is the outer shell-ish and the medulla is deep in the middle. I think I would do a frontal plane for that.
1: Okay. So front and back kidney opposed to a right and left kidney. Well, half of kidney. So cutting the body into a... Frontal plane,
0: coronal plane. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? That's up to you, mate. <laughs> I think, I mean, you, the image you're looking at right now on your computer screen is a sagittal. That one? No, I'd say Oh, I see. No, yeah. um, sagittal plane for the kidney, not sagittal plane for the body. Yeah, cutting
1: the, cutting the kidney in a frontal plane.
0: Okay. Anyway, don't, don't worry don't about it. do you agree? That's a sagittal plane. No, I don't agree. But if the way the kidney's orientated in the body, it's a frontal plane. But I get what you're saying. I get yeah. what you're saying. Uh, sorry, everyone. That was just a little bit of a, a side discussion. But regardless, you've got the cortex, which is the outer layer, right? And then you've got the medulla, which is deep in the middle. We'll talk about the medulla later. But in the cortex, that's where we have all of our nephrons. And so the cortex is just filled with these nephrons that look like snakes, right? Like they've got a mouth, which is called the capsule, or Bowman's capsule after yep. William Bowman, yep. um, or now we just refer to it as the uh, capsule of the nephron. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the snaking body of the nephron. And the snaking body has different aspects to it. You've got the proximal convoluted tubule. Then you've got the uh, descending limb of the loop of Henley, also known as the loop of the nephron. I was going to put that anatomist in there as well, Oh yeah. but I left it out. Okay, great. Glad everyone knew that. Poor Mr. Mr. Henley. Johnny Henry Henley. <laughs> um, so you've got the descending limb, which is a thin limb, and then you've got the ascending limb, which has a thick limb, and then you've got the distal convoluted tubule, and then you've got the collecting ducts. And basically the whole point of understanding this and the little snaking body of the nephron is that you're going to have a blood vessel that goes into that nephron, called the glomerulus, like you stated before, that pushes the blood... Out and some of its components, which we'll talk about shortly, into the capsule of the nephron. And then this, what's now called filtrate of the blood, travels through the body of these tubules, right? Which are just small tubes. Whatever makes it to the very end of this nephron will become urine. But the thing is, every single day, you will push into these nephrons 180 litres of filtrate. But at the end of the nephrons you only will release 1.8 liters, so 1%, which means 99% of whatever gets pushed into those nephrons gets thrown back into the body, also known as reabsorbed back into the body. And that's probably one of the most important functions of the kidneys is that these nephrons or these tubules need to be able to reabsorb things back into the body. If it doesn't, you'll very quickly pee out your entire body's weight, your entire, well, you'll very quickly pee out your blood volume within an hour or two.
1: Yeah. And there is a condition that is similar to this being a a type of diabetes diabetes, insipidus, which is you lack to some degree the ability to reabsorb a lot of the water. And so you are urinating a lot more water, not 180 litres, but more
0: than you should. Yes. So should we talk about the blood vessel going in, ultimately going to The glomerulus and then, or do you want to talk about the function, the specific different functions of the kidneys and get to that? Oh, let's do the function. All right. There's heaps of functions of the kidneys. And like I said, a lot of people just think the kidney just excretes waste, but it doesn't. It has multiple functions. And I've got probably the best mnemonic that you can think of. Um, I'm looking forward to it look forward to this. And that will be the mnemonic... Did you come up with this yourself? Of course I did. Okay. And that will be the mnemonic that we use definitively for the rest of the podcast. Am I right? Well, let the viewers be the judge. Okay. So, here's my mnemonic to remember the functions of the kidneys. Very clever people make exciting explorers. You're welcome. How good was that? Pretty good. Read again. Very clever people make exciting explorers. Okay. Okay, so the V is volume, particularly blood volume. The kidneys play a, ra- a role in maintaining our blood volume. And we know that from our podcast on and various videos on the YouTube channel, Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike, that blood volume is intrinsically related to blood pressure. Therefore, the kidneys play an important role in blood pressure. So that's a V. Okay. Then we've got clever... And the C is concentration. So the kidneys regulate the concentration of a range of things, but two important ones, electrolytes, so ions, sodium, potassium, calcium, chloride, magnesium, bicarbonate, hydrogen, but also the concentration of water, H2O. Very good, Michael. All I right. go with volume though. Okay, shut up. So, and then the P for people, pH, it maintains... Long-term acid-base balance. Long-term mm-hmm. acid-base balance. Not Very not good. Mm. That's, that's right. A, that's your lungs. M for make, metabolic. The metabolic function is that the kidneys undergo gluconeogenesis. Is this important
1: for the body though? Shut For its own
0: self. Gluco, what the gluconeogenesis? Yeah. Body. Does it do much? Okay, listen to this. Just so you know, because you, you wouldn't know, because you don't know as much about the human body as I do, that it's true. in times of fasting when your body is in need of glucose and you don't have any that the kidneys will rival the liver in its ability to produce glucose from non-carbohydrate based sources called gluconeogenesis well wow. the kidneys will take amino acids and help create glucose or glucose substrates that will rival the liver's ability to do it just the there proteins
1: just the proteins amino acids so just in amino acids not not in glycogen no
0: because well the Kidney has glycogen stores that it can turn into glucose, but I'm talking about in times of fasting well beyond the time point that we've used up our glycogen stores. Oh, beyond that? Beyond that, Okay. yes. But it does undergo glycogenolysis.
1: So for a diabetic that Mm -hmm. is going uh, in a state of hyperglycemia, so this could be like maybe a DKA for a type 1. That's diabetic ketoacidosis. Or a HHS for a type 2. Which is what? hyperosmolar, hyperosmolar uh, what's that H hyperglycemic yeah. syndrome yeah I think something like that um, so in that both of those states what part of the reason for why they go such, have such high blood sugar levels is because there's not insulin either in type 1 at all or the insulin has become kind of desensitized so the liver is just pumping out heaps of glucose yeah would the Kidney do the same, or because the kidney is insulin independent, does it not do that? No, it does that.
0: It does that because it gets signals from the body uh, that it needs this glucose.
1: So it can worsen diabetic states as well as the liver
0: does. Yes, and. when Matt says worse in diabetic states, he simply means it in the, can contribute in the acute to further accumulation of glucose in the bloodstream, yeah, yeah. which it, the body thinks is a good thing because it thinks yes, the body right. is starving yep. a starving glucose like like
1: a like a fasting state. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yes, and would it do lipolysis as well? Uh, no, because there's not a huge amount of fat stored in the in the kidneys. Okay. Um, but it, gluconeogenesis that's, in, that's impressive and glycogenolysis. And uh, glycogenesis. Okay. So it can store glycogen from glucose. It can break the glycogen down to make glucose, but it can create new glucose from non-carbohydrate-based sources like amino acids. That's not the only metabolic function, Matt. Under M for metabolic, vitamin D synthesis. It can synthesize vitamin D to help regulate. Is that meti- Yes, of course it's metabolic. Though. Of course it is. You moron. You fool. It's endocrine. No, no, no. It's not. So It's metabolic. I don't know where this is going. It doesn't synthesize vitamin D. It metabolizes a precursor to create the active functional form of vitamin D. All right, keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So the next exciting, so EX, (laughs) not just E, right? Excretory. Okay. Excretes waste like urea. Drugs. And it has to be water-soluble drugs. Fat-soluble get pooped out. And toxins. So basically anything that shouldn't be there that is or anything that's accumulated to a point in is which- Is toxin a good term? It's toxic.
1: Because I know you hate that term.
0: Well, I hate the term when it's not referring to a toxin. <laughs> but if you've got a metabolic- so, is it, so
1: isn't toxin just any chemical that's now in a certain concentration
0: that becomes- Harmful. Harmful. Yeah. Okay. So a toxin can be a- w- Water. Wa- well, Potentially if it's- Yes. In excess. Yes. Okay. Exactly but you could have a very low level of a certain compound that shouldn't be in the body at all and it can be toxic. Yep. Or you can have something that's not so for example urea fine at particular levels yeah, but not
1: in high high amounts where you can go
0: into uremic yeah events. Exactly. So excretory and then finally for explorers endocrine. And its endocrine function includes creating hormones. Hormone like- D? Nope. Oh, Renin? This is not Impressive well, at all? It's because you're wrong. Renin and EPO. What's EPO? Uh, ureth- urethropoietin. No, erythropoietin. Poietin. No, erythro, not urethro. Ure- urethro. Yeah, that's the urethra. It's got nothing to do with that. <laughs> no, it's not erythro. Ureth- for not urethra. For red blood cell. Okay. Erythro, yeah, yeah, erythro which is red. Yes, erythropoietin. So renin and erythropoietin EPO. And so I've got very clever people make exciting explorers. Volume, concentration, pH, metabolic, excretory, and endocrine.
1: Seems similar. That's to, good, right? Seems similar mnemonic to your uh, antibiotics one. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put on the together again. <laughs>
0: but. All okay. right, all right. No, wait, wait, wait. So what Matt's referring to is if you go to uh, the YouTube channel and type in Dr. Mike Antibiotics, you'll which see is, that... Which is a popular video, actually. Yeah, it's got like a million views. Uh, if you go to that video and have a look, I created... And I actually created a newer one because I missed out on one or two classes. So it's even... Did you update number. it
1: from the Queen to the
0: King? Because <laughs> we now have a King of England. I didn't, unfortunately. King of unfortunately. the UK. Um, if you have a look... Uh, I use a mnemonic to remember all the different classes of antibiotics. And it's something like all the king's horses. Get and
1: excited that. and yeah. they're explorers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now it's so time we're for. We're going to use that mnemonic. Now it's now. time for my one. What, your what? My mnemonic. You've got a mnemonic. Yeah. Which you will, didn't say that. Which will outdo your one. Here we go. I think the listener should decide. The mnemonic okay. for urinary function is a wet bed. A wet bed. So A W E T B E D. That's it. All right. Very go. easy to remember because if you have problems with your urinary system, you may wet your bed. Okay. Okay. Which is actually incontinence. But anyway, A, acid base balance.
0: Yeah. Okay. I like pH better. W, yeah.
1: water balance.
0: Sure. That's fine. E, electrolyte balance. That's good. I mean, I did put mine together, but that's fine. Yep. Toxin removal. Ah, uh, see, it's what it should be waste. It should be waste, not just toxin. Stick with toxin.
1: Okay. B, blood pressure regulation.
0: Yeah, but I think the kidney's primary role there is blood volume regulation, it's and the balance. blood pressure is a byproduct of that.
1: Okay, and then E,
0: EPO. Yeah, but why by itself?
1: And, and D, vitamin D.
0: Shouldn't E be endocrine, and then you can put both EPO and renin in there?
1: We can do that. Oh, and no, then that's going to be blood pressure. No, so let's stick with a wet bed, easy to remember, sits well with the urinary system. What was D? Makes a lot of vitamin D. Makes that starts lo- with a V. makes a lot of... D, D, Michael. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you,
0: listeners. All right, so we need to pick one that we're going to follow through with. Um, We'll go with yours. Thank you. But I really would like the dear listener to send an email and say, whose is best? Is it a wet bed? Which, again, the mnemonic is good, but the actual terms that it stands for isn't super helpful. If If I had a student that wrote toxins as a function of the kidneys... I would not You'd give them a them mark. You'd mark them down. But I would give them uh, bonus marks for saying <laughs> what I said. I'd give my- them bonus marks if they could rem- remember yours. <laughs> <laughs> no, very clever people make exciting explorers. I think that's true. All right, so let's start then. Uh, acid-base balance, that's A. So you're saying that the kidneys play a role in acid-base balance. So what does that mean overall? So what do we mean by acid and base very broadly? This is relating to pH pH
1: being, I guess you would say, the power of hydrogen, which yep. is the concentration of hydrogen.
0: Or the potential of hydrogen, which yep. which I've had many p- people argue with me online. I say the power of hydrogen because it makes more sense, but people say, no, it's potentia of hydrogen, and it's a French term, and it's referrer, who cares? But go on. So... Uh,
1: this is just basically the concentration of hydrogen in tissue or the body, hydrogen. or in this case, the blood hydrogen ions. Hydrogen ions. That's H right. plus. Yep. Yep. And so as this, as hydrogen ions start to build up in concentration, the pH because it is uh, a log logarmy- logarithmic. Yeah. Say that again, sir. No log scale. Negative log scale. <laughs> logarithmic. <laughs> there yep. we go. Negative long log scale. <laughs> it actually. Um, the pH goes down. So the more hydrogen you have, yep. the pH goes lower yep. and vice versa as the hydrogen. You know, I've done I- a video on this
0: that everyone yep. can listen to
1: or watch. So whenever the pH is out of range and the pH that we would like the body to be in, in a physiological pH is 7.35 to 7.45. Sure. So if it was to derange out of that range into <laughs> an, an acid
0: or an acidotic state or an alkalotic state- so you said acidotic is too many hydrogen ions yep. free floating in the solution yep. and a, a, an alkalinic state or basic state is going to be too little hydrogen that's ions right. in the solution. This will cause problems to homeostasis. So it's so all about the, f- the level of free hydrogen ions in the solution, right? Because yep, yep. you can have hydrogen ions that are then bound up by something, but that actually changes the pH and that's the point of a buffer.
1: Yep, right? Right. So
0: you can have something like bicarbonate, HCO3 negative in a solution And if it comes across hydrogen ions, it binds to it and buffers it. Correct. So it removes it from the system, mops it up. So bases mop up hydrogen ions and acids are a solution that releases hydrogen ions, making the solution acidic. I think that's an important distinction, is that hydrogen ions itself isn't an acid. An acid releases hydrogen ions to make a solution acidic. There we go. And the pH is a measure of the hydrogen ion concentration. That's a good point. Um, so, how do the kidneys- so, so, just, this? so, really quickly,
1: how are we likely to get these, this state to change? Well, this comes to the bicarbonate buffering system. Yep. And our cells, as a result of producing, making ATP, a, a gas that it produces as an exhaust fume- is carbon dioxide. Sure. So each cell in your body has the potential or will make CO2 and CO2 gets spat out of the cell and usually encounters pretty quickly water, so H2O, and that's in pretty much all extracellular environments, Yep. lots of water, and the CO2 and the water merge together in an intermediate of carbonic acid.
0: Yeah. So if you Google the bicarbonate buffer system, you'll see that... If you do it in the opposite direction, right? So if I, right now I to hold my breath, <gasps> the carbon dioxide that's in my bloodstream, the CO2, binds with the water, like yep. you said, H2O, yep. and simple like grade three maths, put those things together, it creates H2CO3, yep. which is carbonic acid. And it's in the term acid. Acids hate themselves. Split themselves apart into hydrogen and um, bicarbonate. Yeah, into H plus hydrogen ion and bicarbonate ion HCO three negative. So it splits itself into the the acid producing substance hydrogen ions and the conjugate base, the thing that can mop it up. And the great thing is it's reversible. Yep. So, yep. you know, so basically the point is that through your respiratory system, if your hydrogen ion levels go too high, it just binds to bicarbonate, pushes it in the direction of carbon dioxide production, you breathe Breath out, out. you are You effectively breathe out acid. Yeah. Right? So, hyperventilation can change your blood pH. That's right. Or, or hypoventilation. Yeah. So,
1: the take-home point here What's is- What's that got to do with the kidneys? Oh, we've got to get to that. Oh, okay. So, the take-home point here is every cell in your body has the potential to make an acid forming substance, which is CO2, that will meet water, become an acid, as Mike said, split into hydrogen and bicarbonate. Now, this- if this was to build up, you would become acidic and you wouldn't last very long. So luckily we have a very quick buffering system, which is your respiratory system, and that is a way of getting rid of CO2, and that is to help buffer in the very short term changes within predominantly your CO2 levels.
0: Yeah, short term, because like right now, I could change my blood pH simply by, again, hyperventilating or hypoventilating. Yep. But my kidneys aren't that quick. Not that quick and so if for example my respiratory system isn't sufficient enough yep. and it's not actually that's not the only
1: buffering it's not just no, there's lungs many there's or many kidneys. more we we're, we're just kind of Broadly. relying on two main systems on how to buffer or how to monitor your pH levels
0: but so the kidneys will play around with that so the way I think about it is if you take that equation that we spoke about, where on one end of the equation, the equation, it's CO2 and water, and on the other end, it's H plus hydrogen ions and bicarbonate, HCO3 negative. On one end of the equation, the lungs deal with, right? In terms of excretion. In that's terms right. of excretion, carbon dioxide and water. And on the other end, the kidneys can directly deal with. That's right. So and the it's kidneys will directly excrete or, or secrete or reabsorb hydrogen ions and bicarbonate. That's right.
1: Yeah, so that's a good point. So what I like to say to my students is CO2, every cell in the body will make it. Yes. But the only organ that can get rid of CO2 is your lungs. And then when you go to the other end, which is hydrogen and uh, bicarbonate, every cell technically can probably, to some degree, make hydrogen. But the kidneys is probably the only one that can really excrete hydrogen. Yeah, yeah. And then bicarbonate the kidneys is the only real organ that I know of that can actually make bicarbonate which it can do but it can also reabsorb which is going to be important for what we're talking about here so the way that the kidney can regulate pH if there's a problem with the, the lungs like you said so either you are you are not ventilating well so you're retaining CO2 or you're doing the opposite and you're ventilating too much mm the kidney has the potential to deal with the hydrogen or bicarbonate. Yeah. Or the other alternative is you're just making too much acid in the body. Yeah,
0: which or, can happen number of ways. Or you're
1: retaining bicarbonate by other means like, say, excessive vomiting.
0: Sure. Okay. Well, so you could, for example, uh, people have a really high protein-based diet. Proteins are made up of amino acids. And so when you deaminate and you break down proteins, yep. you produce acids and those acids need to be dealt with and the kidneys will predominantly be dealing with those acids. And so again, you can change the pH of your blood through your diet and it's not significant. I don't, don't get me wrong. It's like people think, oh, I should be eating an alkaline diet or an acid diet. No, 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 no. It's not going to change it that substantially because you've got these internal buffer systems and the respiratory system and the renal system that will deal with it for you. So you're not changing anything necessarily intrinsically because your kidneys will handle, literally handle those things. So we've got, so it handles the hydrogen ions and the bicarbonate ions. And we'll talk later on about exactly how and where it handles this yeah. when we go through the nephron and talk about all the specific things that are reabsorbed and secreted. At different areas, right? Yep. Okay, so that's one function. That's the A and A. So,
1: so the take-home point there is, if there are beginning changes of the pH in the body, in the blood, all these intermediates that we just spoke about will be in present in the plasma, which is in your blood, and twenty-five percent of cardiac or twenty percent of cardiac output goes to your kidneys every minute, and therefore the kidney is making a lot of this into filtrate and then the kidney has the potential to play around with the, either the hydrogen by excreting it yep. or by reabsorbing the, the bicarbonate. And by doing these two things in a different degrees, it has the potential to change the pH. Perfect. So that's A. So you don't want to talk specifics here on how and where in
0: the nephron? No, I think what we should do is once we go through these functions, we should talk about the filtration process of okay. the nephron, right. and then what gets reabsorbed and secreted where. Okay. And then we can talk about urine production or, or urine creation. Okay. And then where that urine goes and mictuition okay. and so forth. What do you think? Yep. Okay. So, so that's, that's pH. So yep. it's the A, that's acid base. Yeah. So you said that's pH, but it's the A, acid base. <laughs> a terrible mnemonic. Uh, a wet bed. W. Water balance. Here we go. What do you know about water balance?
1: Well, water, what are we, 65 Ish percent water. Yeah. So, sounds good. Um, very important solvent in the body, and we can't survive well without it. Mm, good points. So,
0: probably everyone already knew. So,
1: so if we were to
0: lose it, we wouldn't um, survive. <laughs> yeah. All right, my turn. Sounds like uh, you don't know much about water balance. So I think I'll take it. Mate, you can go, just go. Urinate. <laughs> go take a leak, which is Australian for urinate or, or micturate. Yeah. Which is. That was my. That's my full name. People just call me Dr. Mick, but full name's Dr. Mitchell. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So water balance. So remember that your body's made up of certain elements. Around about fifty odd elements from the periodic table, and there's going to be four main elements that make up like ninety six percent of you: carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. Probably that's probably right. Sodium? No, definitely not. So those four, carbon, okay. hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. And if you think about the hydrogen and the oxygen, most of that is bound together as water. And so you've got those two predominantly in the system as water. Now we know what water's like. If you put water in a cup, it, j- it fills it from the bottom up, but water doesn't fill you from the bottom up. So it's not like your legs are obviously filled with water and it goes up 65% of you too. Well, for you, that will be you got, kneecaps. Unless you got peripheral demon. <laughs> Very true. So... It's This water balance is located in different compartments, mainly intracellular and extracellular, where two-thirds is inside cells yep. and the remaining third is outside of cells. And the outside of cells includes your blood vessels. So you've got around about- Which is plasma, right? Which is plasma. That's what, mm. that's what the water is called in your vascular system, is plasma. And it makes up what? five percent Yeah, so you've got six litres, five to six litres of blood plasma- In the body? Or just blood. Of blood, yeah. Um, And 55% of that is plasma. Okay, there you go. The rest is cells, proteins, and other uh, dissolved substances. I like what you said about water being a solvent. So it's, in biology, the universal solvent, which means it dissolves things that we call solutes. So we can dissolve anything with a charge, really, loves being mixed in with water. If it doesn't have a charge, it doesn't like to get mixed in with water. And so water balance is super important because we need a certain quantity of water in our cells and outside our cells for things to function properly. And the kidneys are going to be playing an extremely important role in this process. Overall blood volume, right? Because if you think about this, it, it, I always say to my students, why would my kidneys have a role in managing blood pressure and blood volume, right? And I know you're going to talk about blood pressure shortly because it's another ridiculous part of your mnemonic but water balance is intrinsically related to blood pressure and blood volume right so our excretion of stuff including water must match the intake of our stuff right and so if we ingest a lot of water we need to be able to pee it out and that's the kidney's role so it can balance it up also why why don't we want to hold on to water just you know, just in case, is because it dilutes out the appropriate concentration of things, which means things don't function properly. So if you dilute out the sodium in your body or the potassium, neurons won't function Yeah, the properly. excitable tissue won't. Exactly. Yeah. So we must maintain a tight control, and that's the role of the kidneys. So that's that water balance. It, did you want to talk more about that? Because we can talk about more of it in the electrolyte part and the blood pressure part. Okay, so when... Exactly how the kidney does it. Yeah. Is that what you meant? Yeah, because uh, isn't B in wet bed blood pressure? Blood pressure. Yeah. yeah, so I think we talk about the control there, don't you think? Okay. All right, so that's A-W-E. What's the E? Electrolytes. So similar thing. It controls the quantity of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, calcium, chloride, magnesium, bicarbonate, hydrogen ions. Predominantly those- the last
1: two go in the acid base, so that's A. Yes. All the others- are the electrolytes, which are mostly important in the way that
0: the renal or the the nephron handles these electrolytes at different levels. Yeah. So those seven are the major ions or electrolytes that the kidneys play around with. Again, sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, magnesium, bicarbonate. And you could probably say glucose, right? Yeah, but it's not an ion. It is a charged molecule. Yeah. C6H12O6, the oxygen and the hydrogen have... Well, the oxygen predominantly have a partial charge to it. It is a a polar molecule. And it is in your electrolyte drinks. Yeah, but not because it's an (laughs) electrolyte. So an electrolyte, by definition, is a salt, which, when dissolved in the universal solvent water, splits off to form two charged ions. Fair enough. So if you drink salt sodium chloride together there's no charge for that salt because they're sharing they have an ionic bond which means they share a charge and then when you put it into the water which the is solvent. the universal solvent it pulls it apart and now you've got positive sodium ion negative chloride ions and so again you need to manage the balance of that in the body because these ions play really important roles in a number of things one neuron sending signals right uh two muscle contraction three Uh, endocrine tissues releasing hormones. Or wherever these ions go, water follows it. And so the concentration of ions cannot be pulled apart from the concentration of water. Hence why your mnemonic is stupid, because it's got them as two separate functions. But in actual fact, should be one. Like I had, concentration. Concentration of water and electrolytes, huh?
1: Yeah, anyway, keep going. Right.
0: Any, anything else
1: to add with electrolytes?
0: No, obviously you want me to finish. So that's E, T. Uh,
1: this is the toxins. Which
0: oh, here we go. You talk about this one because uh, I'm out.
1: Okay, so the toxins that it's referring to is pretty much urea. And oh, yeah, my urea. My and creatinine. Not creatine. Not creatine. Creatinine. Creatinine.
0: So they're the... Okay, so okay, let's just... These again. are the
1: metabolic... Byproducts, oh, that so if, metabolic byproducts. If they build up in a certain degree, they'll become toxic. Right.
0: But generally, they don't become toxic, do they?
1: No, not if your kidneys work.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So urea is the safe way of getting rid of the ammonia or the, the nitrogen part of an amino acid, right? Yeah, the amine group. So with a protein, a protein is made up of building blocks, which are termed amino acids. Amino acids can be, if you are catabolizing them, so you're breaking them down to, let's say, make energy, you could break a component or half of it into a carbon based structure that can be made into energy. Yep. Which you spoke about with the kidneys and liver have that capacity. But the amine N, which is the NH3, NH4 plus? NH4 plus. Okay. That part is harder to handle because it is ammonia, right? Yes. And I mean, ammonia. NH3,
0: yes. Yeah. I suppose, yeah.
1: And that can be problematic because it would be toxic in that form to the body. That's right. Because that's, you know, that's a substance you clean your bathrooms with. So yes. you don't want to be cleaning your arteries and blood vessels with that.
0: No, but remember, it's all about the quantity.
1: That's right. And so, it- and so the way that it's handled more efficiently is the liver can repackage it in the urea cycle into a more stable molecule called urea. Yes. Urea then gets excreted into the blood and then that's just in the plasma and the plasma as part of what the kidneys is getting all the time is just filtrate or plasma and it will say this is a substance where you have to get rid of.
0: Yeah, and the great thing about the, the kidneys as well is it doesn't just rely on the filtration at the glomerulus to get rid of the ammonia or the urea. You can actively secrete urea into the tubules independent of the glomerulus which we'll talk about but that's important because if we only relied on the glomerulus filtering out these waste products these metabolic wastes it probably wouldn't be sufficient enough to get rid of it right right so uh, again we'll talk about that towards the end about the nephron and exactly what gets reabsorbed and secreted where but so basically you're saying that the t for toxin is actually w for waste Okay, that's cool. So it should be two Ws there. <laughs> so you could – why yeah. don't you replace the W for water and make that waste, okay, right? And then you could have the T for – Tunicity. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. That's good. Tunic- okay. Yeah, okay.
1: Maybe we'll update this wet bed. We'll stick it in a wet bed because it's really good. Yeah, but okay. But we might – Tweak it, <laughs> just like, like the nephron does. All right, so- The other, a the other toxin is oh, yeah. crea- creatinine, and that is a metabolic product of muscle metabolism.
0: So not creatine. Not creatine.
1: So creatine phosphate. So creatine is an energy molecule, right? Which is important yep. for very short-term bursts of ATP production. Yes. A byproduct of utilizing this is creatinine. That's right.
0: And the muscles will produce creatinine at a known quantity daily. So you can use creatinine as a measure to know- uh, Yeah, how,
1: how well you're filtering which I think is a better measure for GFR than urea. Cause What's GFR, at, Matt? Uh, glomerular filtration rate. So like you just said, urea has the potential to be handled not only at the glomerulus, it can be reabsorbed and then secreted. So there's different ways that the kidney or the nephron plays around, plays around with urea- yeah. but creatinine can't. That's right. It, as soon as it gets put through the intiglomerulus into the filtrate, it, its only portal of exit, I guess, its only, it's only trip is- Oh, you're doing a good to, job. Keep going. Its only, it's only trip <laughs> is the toilet. So
0: you're saying, because I'm just going to say- It has no ability say. to do anything else but go into the bathroom. So you're saying if you have a look at some of these waste products- like urea. Urea doesn't just go from blood to kidney through the, the glomerulus, right? And then peed out. It can actually be altered at different parts yeah. in the glomer- uh, uh, along the nephron. So if you were looking at... Uh, the urea status in the blood to tell you how well the glomerulus was filtering, it may not be a, an appropriate measure because exactly. yeah. you can excrete it through different mechanisms. Yeah. right? But you're saying that with creatinine, it's only got one way of being peed out that's going from blood through the glomerulus into the urine. Into the nephron. It
1: can't be reabsorbed at any point. It just has to end up in the collecting duct, which is then in the... So creatinine, pebbles.
0: better measure of... Filtration Uh, rate. Filtration rate of the glomerulus. Okay, great. So that's the waste. Sorry, toxin. That's That's the toxin. toxin. Okay, so we've got A, wet. Now B. Blood pressure. Right, so like I said earlier, the kidneys... Or B for brilliant. (laughs) B (laughs) for Barton. Uh, So the kidneys don't necessarily play around with blood pressure explicitly. It plays around with blood volume, but by default that changes blood pressure. It can also, to be technical... Yeah.
1: It can also play around with vascular char dynam- diameter. Very true. Indirectly, but it's important part of.: it. Ready to pop the
0: question.
1: So, So if if we're talking blood pressure here, renin, that's what you're saying? Yep. So, this is the RAS system? Are you agreeing? Yes. Okay. So, when the kidneys experience the likelihood of low blood pressure, it will activate a system called the RAS, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and a product of that is a number of things that will then bump up the blood pressure. One being... um, To reabsorb water back into the blood. Another one being salt, which then is water, and another one is blood vessel diameter. Right. So So all these things will
0: essentially increase blood pressure. Okay. So if we have a look, the kidneys, if the blood so they're very sensitive to blood pressure changes because of that filtration rate. It needs to filter 180 liters per day to do its job. Or 120 mils per minute in order to make sure that the blood doesn't accumulate anything it shouldn't and can excrete all the things it should, right? So, And if that changes again, we get sick pretty quick. So if the, blood, the systemic blood pressure drops, effectively you could say, well, it's going to filter less stuff because less blood's making it at the appropriate pressure to the glomerulus. So the kidneys are very sensitive to those changes and there are certain cells in the blood vessel walls that can measure the, change, the baroreceptors Macula denser cells that measure that pressure change and they release renin. So that's in the afferent arteriole? That's in the afferent arteriole.
1: So that's the blood vessel coming into the glomerulus. glomerulus.
0: Yeah, so if the pressure is low in that, then it goes, ooh, pressure's low, I'm going to release this protein-based hormone called renin into the bloodstream and then renin, through a whole bunch of mechanisms, will activate something called angiotensin, Two, ultimately. Eventually, yeah. Eventually. And angiotensin two, like you said, it just vasoconstricts blood vessels throughout the body, which increases blood pressure. Yep. But also vasoconstricts the efferent arteriole, the one on the other end of the glomerulus, which means the blood that goes into that filtration well, unit backs up in the filtration unit, right? Which
1: increases the hydrostatic pressure, which is the pushing pressure, and then more filtrate is made.
0: Which is the point. So the the reason... So I always say to the students that the kidneys don't actually care about maintaining blood pressure. It just cares about maintaining glomerular filtration rate. Enough
1: enough pressure to create the driving force to, to push the plasma out of the blood vessel.
0: That's right. Yeah, exactly right. And, so and that,
1: that should be about 55 millimetres of mercury, right?
0: Yes, yeah. yes. The other thing is that it's not the only way that it maintains blood pressure because angiotensin two. Will also go to the adrenal gland to release Adosterone. aldosterone, which goes back to the kidneys, specifically the nephron, and tells it to throw more sodium, salt. salt back into the body. And as you said, water follows salt. I always say to students, when you eat chips, you get thirsty because of the salt. Wherever the salt goes, water follows. Same in the body. If you throw salt back into the blood, water goes bl- back into the blood. And also ADH, ADH from the angiotensin uh, II. Yes, yes, that's right. So angiotensin II goes to the hypothalamus and says, hey, release antidiuretic hormone, which also travels to the nephron and says, just reabsorb more water back into the body. Again, increasing blood volume, which if you look at the blood pressure equation, blood pressure equals... Cardiac output. Times? Uh, vascular resistance. That's right. And cardiac output, big part of that is blood volume. Yep. So yes, absolutely. It does play around with blood volume well. You said blood pressure, but yes, both. So uh, that, I think that's super important.
1: That's B for bed. E. Uh, Epo. EPO.
0: Right. Instead of endocrine, you've put EPO. All right. We could...
1: Anyway, keep going. Yeah, let's not just no, change I'm it right not now. not changing it now. Okay. No, no, Epo no, no. Is brilliant. It was
0: already dumb anyway. So.
1: EPO is brilliant. Yeah. So EPO okay. yeah. is a hormone. How do you pronounce it again? Um, EPO. Yeah. <laughs> urethro.
0: no, erythro, 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 erythro. Not er- I can't
1: say it. Erythro. Anyway, this hormone, which is released from the kidney, <laughs> yeah, in times of hypoxia. So, if the kidney, that mean low oxygen oh. con- concentration, not to the point of death, but just lower than it should be. Right. So it would experience maybe this during. Bouts of cardiovascular exercise. Sure. And also- Climbing mountains. Climbing mountains. So lower, well, sorry, high altitude, lower partial pressure of oxygen. Yep. So less atmosphere above us, therefore less pushing pressure of oxygen in our systems, let's say. So the, the kidneys picks up this low amount of oxygen. So it's thinking, well, we're a bit hypoxic here. What I need to do is tell the part of the body that produces red blood cells- because right. I know that red blood cells are really good at carrying more oxygen.
0: Yeah, it's pretty much all they do.
1: And so, <laughs> so the location of where you make new red blood cells, which is called erythropoiesis, ure- is is, is your red marrow.
0: Yes, red bone marrow.
1: And this has- Which a, is located where? Um, ends of long bones, but probably more in short flat bones, more abundantly.
0: As an adult. Yeah. But if you're a kid- it's going to be like your femur and stuff. Yep. But as an adult, it's going and to be uh, things like your sternum,
1: your skull. And since you brought it up, also in the embryo, it's the yolk sac.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't. And, and, and liver, no. I think. Really? Yeah. Okay. So anyway,
1: <laughs> where's your yolk sac? <laughs> um, Left it at I don't home. know what it no. comes. I guess it becomes what the afterbirth. I don't really? look. In, have to look into that. Okay. If you know where your yolk, yolk sac, sac, sac is. <laughs> Right in to Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's.
0: (laughs) If you've still got your yolk sac, let us know.
1: (laughs) So um, we have a very active stem cell in – well, not one stem cell, many thousands, millions of stem cells in your um, red red bone marrow. And this is producing all your blood cells. So this will produce your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and your platelets. Now, surprisingly – and I didn't really know this until recently – Yep. Well it wasn't explicit to me. Okay. But you know, and something like sixty percent of your cells are red blood cells. Yeah. So big chunk. It's amazing, isn't it? What so is it? A million a second or something we make. Two million about two million a second.
0: That's a lot. So
1: it is a very dynamic system that's just constantly producing these cells to carry oxygen.
0: I so I heard that some unnamed cyclists used EPO as a doping agent. Agent. Uh, to help so with oxygen balancing.
1: carry capabilities. Yeah. So that's why?
0: They that, doped yeah. so they could carry more oxygen so their muscles had a better ability to contract and have energy? And yeah, yeah. So, so
1: basically if you were to throw EPO at this stem cell, yeah. it's going to change the lineages of where all the cells go to. So, instead of going and going, oh, I'm going to go down and make a lymphoblast or I'm going to go make a myeloblast or I'm going to go make a platelet-like cell. Sure. EPO, throw it at it and it will say, oh, we better redirect all these cells more to red blood cells.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And so, I think one of the first uses of hacking this system yeah, would be athletes would go to altitude... Yes. So they would go to, say, somewhere like Bolivia, let's say. Okay. Which is in South America and it's at high altitude. Yep. And they would acclimatise. Yep. So their body would be hypoxic for a period. Right. Produce a lot of EPO. They then would counter this by producing more red blood cells. So their what we call a hematocrit would go up. So yep. instead of 45% of their blood red blood cells, it might start to get closer to 50%. You're saying
0: if I took your blood right now and spun it down and calculated... <clears throat> what, what percentage, percentage of that whole blood is just red blood cells it should be about 45% yeah so theirs would go up because of started to create more red That's blood right.
1: cells so it has better capabilities of carrying oxygen at altitude and so the athlete, so that's
0: natural doping. That's
1: natural doping. All right. But then the athletes, I guess, took it a bit further, and they would say, oh. "I don't
0: want to go to Bolivia." <laughs>
1: <laughs> not, not quite yet. I'd okay. still be in Bolivia, oh. and they would say, "Oh, before I go back down to sea level to do my competition, I'll take a liter of blood out." Oh, okay, okay. So I'll take a liter of my own blood out while it had the higher percentage of red right. blood cells, and then go back down to sea level, reacclimatize, and then just before the event. Chucked that litre liter of blood into my body. Was that legal? Well, I, I, I'm saying no, but okay. it would be hard to uh, check for because it's, it's your own, own blood. blood. But you'd
0: have like seven litres of blood in your body. That's right. Which would be right. probably okay in the short term. Athletes do have more yeah. blood, so yeah. it's not like they can say, hey, you should only have right. X amount of blood in your body. Well, that's interesting.
1: So that would be blood doping, but then I guess as the understanding progressed on exactly what this- mechanism is they then isolated the EPO and then they took that exogenously.
0: Yeah. Said, well, why go to Bolivia? Why take (laughs) a liter of my blood out? Uh, Might as well just take this little drug and do it all for me. Yeah. But the problem is, and I think our friend, uh, Dr. Rowan Rowan Francis on his MedLife Crisis YouTube channel, watched this video about these blood doping athletes some of them had to, these cyclists had to wake up in the middle of the night to cycle to get their blood moving faster because they were at increased risk of stroke. Cause
1: yeah, because so, I think they, their blood, hematocrit, was
0: approaching
1: 55% to Oof. possibly even 60%. Because
0: remember, the thicker your blood is, the more likely it is to clot.
1: Yep. So, it's sl- sludgier. And this is actually- Sludgier. So, this is vis- viscosity, which also plays around with blood pressure. So, sludgier and
0: viscosity, good news. And particularly,
1: particularly, I think at night- your blood becomes more coagulability-like. or well, now you've just made stuff up. <laughs> so it's more likely to clot. Okay. So waking up in the middle of the night to jump on their bike to do some exercise prevents them having ischemic strokes. Jeez, that's insane. So that's the risk you take by doing this. The,
0: hope that's worth yeah. the gold. And people died. People yeah. died of strokes. Okay, so- uh, That's the EPO. That's the EPO. So we're now at the last one, D, vitamin D. Vitamin D. All right, so the kidneys- uh, just basically the, the final point of vitamin D synthesis. So vitamin
1: D gets
0: produced at your skin Yes.
1: with UV uh, radiation yep. from the sun. Activating the cholesterol within your skin. Which makes it an inactive form of vitamin D. Yep. goes to your liver for a slight alteration. That's right. And then it gets sent to your kidney for a final alteration. Yes, that's right. Which makes the vitamin D activated, which... What's, what term do we give for it now?
0: Well, you can call it 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3. That's what I call it. Yeah, Or you could call it what I call it, which is calcitriol. Okay. So in this form, it, now it's
1: active in the way that it functions as a vitamin, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And what it does in the body, ultimately what this is trying to do is maintain calcium homeostasis.
0: Why so, do we care so much about calcium?
1: Well, calcium is an electrolyte.
0: Yep, or Ion.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. An ion. So it's a, char- a charged mo- Not a molecule. a Charged atom. Atom. There we go. Yep. And so it plays in lots of things in the body, but oh, some important, some important, oh, yeah. some important roles. It helps with muscle contraction. Very true. So yeah. it plays an important role with the way that the
0: muscles contract. Yeah, but. I'm just trying to think. So calcium is the key that unlocks the, the troponin-tropomyosin. Yeah, that's right. To free the, myosin the actin, actin myosin.
1: to yep. embrace because they are to embrace.
0: they lovers, exactly. And they all they want to do is embrace and 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 uh, move against each other.
1: <laughs> Hence, that's all right. What so contraction. Is. Calcium is important for muscle the attraction contraction.
0: of contraction. Sorry, so that's on. one.
1: Yeah. Um, for neurotransmitter re- release. Very true. So okay. the end of an action potential to get the neurotransmitter out generally is.
0: Reliant on calcium. Yeah, it tells the vesicles at the synaptic bulb that contain the neurotransmitter to bud off, exocytose. With release
1: the help of that. calcium. Yep. Okay. Um, blood clotting. Yes, that's true. So that's a calcium-dependent process. Yeah. And also, you know, a lot of internal, so intracellular signaling processes. Absolutely. very important with calcium. And when yep. calcium is poorly regulated, the cell probably apoptosis or dies.
0: Yes, so uh, a huge um, release of calcium is, a good, is a, a good signal of cell death. Not, a, not good, but it's- a, It's, it's
1: a indicator, v- a way of measuring objectively yes. whether cells have carked it.
0: You've got another function of calcium. Um, In the bone, man, to make the bone strong. Yeah, I don't know. If, I think that's a secondary. No, 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 no. I so, think
1: that's just the way that the body has adapted over time to go, hey- we need to store this we need a lot in of high amounts yeah. because uh, extracellularly yeah. we can't store it because in a certain concentration, if we have too much calcium in
0: a fluid, it's it bad. becomes a stone. Yes. So we go, <laughs> so maybe let's- Let's chuck it into our bones. Yeah. Let's, let's make it into a shell yep. and then we go, wait a minute, we don't want that shell on the outside of our body. We want it inside of our yep. body. And then we create bones and the calcium sort of binds with phosphate, phosphate yep. to produce hydroxyapatite. Apatite. Apatite. yeah. Hydroxyapatite. Bones have
1: an appetite for calcium. That's right. Um, so 99% of your calcium in your body is in bone form and yes. 1% is kind of in an intermediate form, which is what's trying to be regulated with vitamin D. So when your calcium levels are low, yeah, vitamin D is produced – And as a result, what vitamin D tries to do is bring the serum level, the blood level of vitamin D up. And three main ways it does this is um, helps the absorption of calcium in your gut. So whatever you've just eaten, if it's got calcium in it, will be more efficiently absorbed. Number two is it plays around with the cells that have the dynamite in your bone.
0: The dynamite in your bone.
1: Yeah, and they explode your bone which is called osteoclasts and that bone then gets thrown into your blood and that's what it's one way of getting calcium from your bone and the other is to tell the kidney hey stop excreting calcium hold on to it and put it back in the blood these three mechanisms from vitamin D help to
0: raise um, the calcium levels so the way I think about it and it could be I mean it's biology so it's going to be proven wrong at some point but Because parathyroid hormone is a major regulator of calcium via those exact same mechanisms. Mm. By increasing osteoclast activity to release calcium from the bone into the blood, to increase calcium absorption from the gastrointestinal tract into the blood and to decrease calcium excretion from the kidneys so it maintains in the blood. And so does vitamin D. So they work synergistically Mm. together. But the thing is that as far as I remember, and I would love to be proven right as opposed to wrong, is that incorporating vitamin D with parathyroid hormone also then helps to play around with phosphate homeostasis. So they work synergistically for calcium, but it's important for phosphate homeostasis as well because obviously you're going to release not just calcium but phosphate too. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right.
1: That's, and and, and interestingly with that, if you have calcium handling problems... You will likely, and this sits well with the kidneys, you are likely to develop the salt to accumulate into a stone. In what way? Well, a kidney stone. Right, gotcha. So generally speaking, the majority of kidney stones will be a calcium-based stone. Yep. And that's from many, many potential reasons, but the calcium precipitates to a certain degree that its stone will start to form and then grow and grow and grow until... It becomes a problem. So okay. to get rid of it out of a Be horrible out of the pelvis into the ureter. So the pelvis of the kidney, not yeah.
0: just your pelvis.
1: <laughs> okay, but the interesting story. So how do you pronounce pronounce this guy's last name?
0: Do you want me to um, just say the start, middle, and finish of the story very quickly? Just to <laughs> well, if you know it, it
1: if, you, if you know it, Samuel always,
0: Peeps. Peeps.
1: So Samuel Pepys um, lived, he's an English person, yeah. lived in the 1600s, okay, so he was a diarist and a naval administrator, but he also was part of the Member of Parliament. So I read this in Bill Bryson's book. Yeah. So this particular person had a genetic, maybe it's genetic, but he had a inherited disorder where he was developing stones.
0: Just constantly. Yeah. Kidney stones?
1: No, actually, bladder stones. Oof. So, and this was a problem back in the day because we didn't have the ability to break the stones up, which
0: was. I do know the story. You want mm, me to screw it up? Lithro, litho, litho, litho. What's the term? So lithiases is the name of the stones. but are you referring Just to? Just the
1: break, the breakdown of stones. We have the ability now in medicine to, you know, send pulse waves through the body into the. Yeah. To the ureter to break it up, or maybe go up through the urethra, bladder, ureter to kind of pull the stone out. But in those days, they didn't have that ability.
0: Have you, have you had a kidney stone? No, I heard it's crazy painful. Yeah, but people are usually predisposed, right? Like a friend of ours was predisposed to it.
1: Yeah, I think it goes to the handling of that particular molecule that makes up the stone. There's different types of stone. Yeah, based on the metabolite. Yeah, so I think from my understanding, the majority from a calcium based. Yeah, but then. The way that it's handled is likely the increase in predisposition for that. But, but I think certain things will increase your risk of them. So not drinking a lot of water, having more concentrated urine, increases the likelihood of this happening. So this particular person, Samuel, Samuel Peeps, Peeps,
0: 1703. He, um,
1: That's what had, he had, had a family like. history of bladder stones. Right. And he was aware that he had one. But the treatment in those days was pretty bad. should be laughing what? I think basically what they did, if it was a bladder stone, it wouldn't be. You wouldn't be able to to do a kidney stone because they wouldn't have too the, high up. Too high up, they wouldn't have the instruments to go up the ureter, but they did have the ability to go up the urethra. So they would have st- stuck instruments oh. up up the urethra. So this for males would be up the urethra, the penis, penis, yeah. All the way up into, which is, I don't know, maybe 12, 15 centimetres in length.
0: Okay.
1: Um, into the bladder. Yeah. Feeling around to find the stone.
0: Oh, yeah. They'd be doing it blind, right?
1: And then pulling it out. Wasn't there a guy that but in this was case, supposedly famous for doing
0: it in yeah. under 60 seconds? So this guy. So this okay.
1: Samuel Pepys knew that he had it. It's such a big problem. Um, so there, he, therefore, he sought Tom, Thomas Hollier, which yep. was a surgeon yep. who was renowned for, I think a lot of surgeons in those days, the, the best surgeons were the quickest surgeons, right?
0: Of course. Well, without anaesthetic, you'd so wonder
1: how quick you could do your procedure. <laughs> Did they have anaesthetics? Oh, no, they just used opioids yeah. or opiates, opiates and yeah. o- other, Aether, I, don't, I, don't think were, I don't think they were at that point. Okay. I think it was opioids. And alcohol. And probably alcohol. Jeez. So what, what they had to do is put the instrument up the urethra, Yeah, then put some kind of forceps that then would hold it. it. Yep. And so it was the size of a small tennis ball. That's how big the bladder stone was in this particular gentleman. So no. That's how big it was. And so then they had to quickly, or the surgeon Thomas Hollier, had to quickly do a, I don't know, perineurium ectomy, so quickly
0: Oh, so underneath the scrotum and between the scrotum and the anus, had to do a cut there. Cut
1: there, (sighs) then quickly went in with the bladder and ripped it out. So he had
0: to cut through there and through the bladder. Yeah. And once he held onto it, he could pull it out. Pull it out,
1: pull it out. And that was done in 50 seconds, the last part anyway.
0: Oh, oh, man. And so obviously it was causing him so much pain is like,
1: have to do it. And that's what I think all of them. Imagine being
0: in such a situation that you go, you know what? This is so bad. I need the alternative. something in my urethra and I need you to cut my perineum. That must be bad for you to yes. take that option up, yes. especially in a time when they didn't have aseptic technique. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. So, anyway, it was pulled out.
1: Recovered from it, but I think he still had issues long-term from that particular procedure. I don't think he uh, had children, so possibly that procedure made him sterile.
0: Right. So that's Samuel Pepys. Okay, Samuel Pepys, there you go. Um, so that is then the- A wet bed. A wet bed. I think we need to talk about now probably the primary role of the nephron, which is the filtration, um, and the blood entering the kidneys, ultimately turning into the glomerulus, and then filtering through, and then what gets thrown back into the body, what gets secreted into the nephron. So what we need to think about is whatever is in the tubule of the nephron is effectively recognised as being outside the body. Yep. Right? If it stays in that tubule, it effectively becomes urine Mm. and will be excreted, right? So we need to think of it like that. So when we say reabsorption, it means it gets thrown back into the bloodstream and it's effectively back into your body. Yep. And whatever gets secreted goes into this tubule and gets peed out. Yes. So we have the abdominal aorta and we've got renal arteries coming off either side. They branch a multitude of times through the kidneys until ultimately it turns into something called the afferent arteriole. So the arteriole is a small muscular blood vessel or small muscular artery. And the muscular part's are very important. So it's got smooth muscle in it so it can change its diameter. And then the afferent arteriole will turn into something called the glomerulus, which is capillary-like, but it's very uh, specific and particular to uh, the nephron here. Mm-hmm. It's unlike anywhere else. And I'll tell you why, because you've got this afferent arteriole, which then turns into this glomerulus capillary network, but usually on the other end of a capillary bed, you have a vein or a venule. Yep. But in this case, you don't. You've got another arteriole called the ephrine arteriole. And this is inf- important because it tells us two things. One, that because they're both muscular arteries or arterioles, you can change the diameter of the blood going in or the diameter of the vessel going in and the diameter of the vessel leaving, which means you can change the pressure in between, which is the pressure at the glomerulus, which changes the filtration ability. So that's the first thing. Second thing it tells you is that because it's not a venule or a vein there's no gas transport or gas exchange happening at the glomerulus. And that's important because the efferent arteriole that moves away from the glomerulus becomes a peritubular capillary network that then wraps around like a mesh around the, all the different aspects of the ne- uh, of the nephron and that's where gas exchange occurs. Right. But that's also where we throw the substances back into the bloodstream. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. All right. So... As the blood enters the afferent arteriole, think about this. Your cardiac output is five litres a minute. Of this five litres, 20% goes to your kidneys. So that's one litre of whole blood goes to your kidneys. Of this one litre, 400 mils is cells and proteins, and 600 mils is plasma. This 600 mils, 20% of it, gets filtered from the glomerulus into The capsule of the nephron. Yep. So that's 120 mils. So that's Bowman's capsule. Bowman's capsule. So basically every minute you create 120 mils of filtrate. If you do the maths, right? So that's 120 mils per minute. You got 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day. So 60 times 24 is 1,440 minutes, 1,440 Minutes times 120 mils is uh, 172,800 mils. 172,800 mils, which is 173 litres. Of of filtrate. Of filtrate. Now, luckily, we don't pee all All that out. out, We reabsorb 99% of that and only pee out 1%, which means we only pee out 1.8, 1.7, 1.8 litres. So that's important. Yeah. When we look at... The glomerulus, there's three membranes or barriers that things must move through, which is really important because it determines what gets filtered and what doesn't. And effectively, the three are the epithelia of the blood vessel of the glomerulus. So the endothelium. The endothelium, which we call fenestrated endothelium, so there's holes in them. They've got a diameter of like seventy to hundred nanometers. So pretty small, right? So that means the big cells don't get out? Exactly. And some proteins. So the, the bigger proteins like album shouldn't get through this size? Yeah. But some small ones will. Yeah. But then underneath that, just like underneath all epithelium and all endothelium, you've got a basement membrane, you've got connective tissue, which is filled with collagen, mm-hmm. and collagen is negatively charged. Right. And that's that will repel certain molecules, well, proteins
1: the, the smaller proteins would. With- Negative charges, right?
0: Yeah, so remember, most proteins, because of the phosphate, have negative charges associated with them. And so the basement membrane will repel the proteins. So the first barrier, the endothelium, stops cells. Second barrier stops proteins. And then the third barrier called podocytes. So these are cells with these feet, arm-like extensions, and they basically stop anything like 10 to 40 nanometers. So it basically stops any remaining cells and proteins. So by the time you get into the nephron, you've basically filtered everything but cells and proteins. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. And if you have a disease called glomerulonephritis, it generally damages the, um, uh, the basement membrane, the collagen part, which means you filter proteins. Yeah. And you find an increased amount of proteins in your urine. Yep. Yep. All right. We're now in the nephron. Let's talk about can you talk about the different parts of the nephron?
1: So at this point we are now filtrate,
0: correct? We are now filtrate, that's right. So we've changed not yet urine.
1: So we've changed from blood plasma to filtrate, and we are in the first part of the nephron after the capsule or the Bowman's capsule. Yeah. So this is a snake like tube. That's right.
0: Which is fairly convoluted. And that's- <laughs> Yeah, by definition. And that's why- Convoluted it, in what sense? Convoluted in the way that it likes to use big, long words and-, and- Convoluted
1: takes a long way, long time to get to the point, which is like me. <laughs> so uh, it's snake-like. So the reason for why we use the term convoluted, well, I actually wouldn't say, well, yes, it's- <laughs> 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 But the terms we're going to now use, a lot of the terms will have convoluted in the word in.
0: The Okay, so it's just okay. important to note this. You know what I'll do? In addition to having images on the YouTube video of this, for the podcast, I'll create some links and people can click on some images I've made that highlight the, the membrane, the glomerulus, and also the nephrons. Okay. What do you reckon? Yeah, so that our podcast listeners can actually have something visual. I can also R- say rather than me. we create transcripts now for all of these podcasts, So, if you go to our website, drmatt.com.au, you'll be able to go to the podcast and go to the transcripts and download the transcripts. Okay. Oh, okay. Exciting, Mike. Really exciting. I'm just glad you do this. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay, cool. As if you're watching the video right now, you can see I'm super stoked with Matt. All right. So, the first part
1: of the nephron post um, capsule is short- the term has been shortened in terms of initialism, <laughs> right. in terms of or well, into PCT proximal, meaning closer to yep. convoluted tubule. Right. so that's the first part of the nephron,
0: like the neck of the snake.
1: Yeah, neck of the snake. Yep. Then we go down to this big loop, and that's named after the gentleman who came up with it, Mister Henley, or first observed it. Yep. Yeah. And so this he didn't lo- create it. No, he didn't create it. Didn't I say discovered? Anyway. No. Okay. So the loop of Henle kind of drops down, that's a descending loop,
0: and then it comes back up being the ascending loop. At this point, can I say that, remember we said at the beginning-ish that all these nephrons are just in the cortex, Hmm. out a couple of maybe centimetre or a few millimetres of the outside, but this loop part dips into the medulla. That's important. It is important. Now,
1: One of the reasons why why that is...
0: No, don't say it. We'll get there when we talk about secretion and... and Oh, okay. Reabsorption.
1: All
0: right. So what's that called? The loop of Henley? Loop of Henley, which
1: which has a descending and an ascending part and also a thick and thin portion, right? Yeah, so the thin
0: descending and then thick ascending.
1: Okay. Yep. And then we go into the other convoluted section, and this is distal, meaning it's further away from the the start. Yep. But I guess it's important to point here that a lot of the diagrams that we see is in this kind of linear fashion. Oh, yeah, good point. But in many... Well, functionally, what actually happens is the distal convoluted tubule, or the DCT, actually comes back and approximates between the afferent and efferent blood vessels. So it's almost sitting between them two, Basically, like, a, the tail, like a junction. Basically,
0: the tail goes back to the mouth of the snake. And this becomes important,
1: because Mike spoke earlier on blood pressure regulation and the the substance renin, which
0: we've done a video, we've done a podcast yeah. and a video on renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. Listen to it and watch it. How good is this? We've, we've just we're throwing people back to old stuff, really good content. Look, Matt's stoked with it. So glad that he's just, really
1: annoyed into- that I got interrupted. So the DCT comes says back, Says you, man, <laughs> comes back into close proximation with the afferent and efferent blood vessel. Yeah, now why that's important, we already spoke about that renin is released from the afferent when there's a low pressure in that blood vessel to bump up blood pressure through the RAS system. Mm -hmm. But the other mechanism that can come into play is that the DCT, which is towards the end of the nephron, if that filtrate, which has gotten to that last part of the snake, is dilute or less concentrated, right? Yeah. It would
0: assume that there hasn't been much filtrate put into it. Okay. So so you're saying that because we're filtering 180 litres of stuff from the blood into this nephron – it knows how much stuff should be at each part. Yep. And if by the time we get to the tail, the distal convoluted tubule, the cells there that are sort of tasting what's inside or measuring what's inside the tubule, it knows what the concentration should be. If it's lower, it goes, well, it must not have filtered enough stuff in there. So it's thought is blood pressure's lower or glomerular filtration rate's lower. Yeah, so it's di-
1: kind of dilute which means that through the nephron, through the PCT, through the descending, through the ascending loop, once it's got to the DCT, yep. the substances in the filtrate have been, everything's been pulled from it because there hasn't been much filtrate at all. Right. That means it's not really as concentrated as you'd think. Therefore, it goes, mm, that means we must have a low blood pressure. Yep. So what I'll do here is I'll also release renin. Perfect. Yeah? Perfect. So it's kind of... So there's of two stimuli. Two stimuli. There's
0: actually three stimuli to release renin. Did you know that? Do you want me to tell you the third? Go no? for it. You're okay. going to do it anyway, so... So the the first is the macular denser cells, and the afferent arterial measuring the pressure of the blood coming into the glomerulus. If that's low, renin released. If the concentration of stuff in the distal convoluted tubules, specifically sodium or sodium chloride, is low, renin release. And the third... Sympathetic innovation. Oh, yes. To the cells that basically stimulate renin release, macula denser cells, and that will release it. Is why that, is why that, sympathetic? Is that beta 2? Uh, it is uh, juxtaglomerular cells. Uh, uh, yes. Yes, it is. Okay. So juxtaglomerular cells have sympathetic innovation to it, and they're the cells that sit between the macula denser and the, um, and what's the name of the, macular denser measures the density. Juxtaglomerular. Juxtaglomerular cells. Or the mesangials. Yeah, mesangial cells. Okay. So, yes, they're the three, sympathetic. Why sympathetic? Because when you have a fight or flight response, you want your blood pressure to go up. Yep. And it can do it through renin. And that's why sometimes they think that there might be a sympathetic issue with blood pressure and it can be addressed possibly by having medications that play with this renin-angiotensin-aldosterone yep. system. Yep, yep. All right, so what's after the distal convoluted so after
1: the distal convoluted is then the collecting duct. Yep. So and there's
0: ducts in here now. The cl- clectin,
1: uh, D-U-C-T, not D-U-C-K. Oh. So the duct then probably receives multiple... Um, Beaks. <laughs> the collecting duct, which is now heading off to the calyces. Pond. Oh. <laughs> which you could call, call the calyces the pond. Uh, I suppose the pond, it's, it's the pond. collecting the, yeah. the urine. Anyway, <laughs> um, so the collecting duct can, can actually receive the exit points from multiple nephrons.
0: Right. So it's not just a single endpoint, oh, There's, many can drain into it. All right. We'll get back to the collecting duct. Let's now talk about once. So the blood's got a whole bunch of stuff in it, right? Ions, water. Um, acids, bases, waste products, uh, whole whole (laughs) whole bunch of stuff. So let's talk about what gets first, because we said of the 180 litres that's thrown into the nephron, 99% gets thrown back out. So what gets thrown back out? So if we think about this, at the proximal convoluted tubule, 65% of the filtrate gets thrown back into the body here. At the loop of Henley, the whole loop, I'm talking about the thin descending and the thick ascending, only 15% of stuff's thrown back. At the distal convoluted tubule, 15% of stuff's thrown back. And then at the collecting duct, about 5% of stuff stuff's okay. thrown back, right? So the proximal convoluted tubule, super important. Now, firstly, I want to talk about this. If the afrin arteriole, if the blood that's coming into that afrin arteriole, if the blood pressure goes up right let's say it's 100 millimeters of mercury and then it goes up to 120 millimeters of mercury luckily there's what we call this auto-regulation of the diameter of the afrin arteriole so it can feel the pressure change and it can auto-respond without the release of certain chemicals yet it can just constrict and dilate now it does obviously release chemicals to do this but we'll talk about in a sec this auto-regulation is so important to respond to uh, massive changes in blood pressure so that it doesn't alter the way your kidneys filter stuff. Yep. So let's just say that autoregulation of the aferon arteriole didn't work and we went from 100 millimetres of mercury to 120 millimetres of mercury. We've now increased the pressure by 25%. Mm-hmm. Effectively, you could increase the GFR, glomerular filtration rate, by 25%, which means you go from expelling one and a half litres of urine per day to 46 and a half litres of urine wow. per day. Because you've only got six litres of total blood volume, you're going to pee out your entire blood volume within a few hours. So this autoregulation of the arterioles are super important, Mm, mm. right? And there's not just the autoregulation, there's also certain chemicals that are released to help play around. And generally speaking, there's many, but the most important ones are for uh, vasodilation, of Your, the afferent, of the afferent arterial, the one coming in, is prostaglandins and nitric oxide, and an important vasoconstrictor of the afferent is noradrenaline, mm-hmm. and angiotensin II. But here's the thing: angiotensin II is a more potent vasoconstrictor of the efferent, the one exiting, and the reason why it does do both, right? So angiotensin 2 which is released ultimately by renin, or at least activated through the process of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, wants to constrict both the blood vessel going in and the one going out. But that's not going to help increase glomerular filtration rate. So luckily, when this happens, nitric oxide and prostaglandins are also released to counteract its constrictive effect at the afferent and only has a constrictive efferent effect. So now you've got vasodilation of the blood coming in and vasoconstriction of the blood going out, so blood backs up into the glomerular capsule.
1: And you still get uh, filtration. Increased filtration So this is all like paracrine signaling, so it's all local, not whole body. Exactly right. Perfect, perfect. But saying that, with, with the idea of prostaglandins, if you were to take a fairly common medication, which is a drug that blocks prostaglandins, NSAIDs, yeah. it could then impact the way that this regulation
0: is maintained yes if you have too many uh, ibuprofen aspirin diclofenac salicoxib in theory they could
1: but maybe not so much
0: the cox-2 inhibitors
1: right because they're a bit more selective for so they're less kidney impacting right
0: they are in theory in theory but again it's all about if you have a look at the research and the data with prostaglandins it's all about doses if you go up to a particular dose Oh, okay. they, all, they all block all yeah, because the same they, they're, not,
1: they're not completely selective. Exactly right. Uh, that's right, yeah. Yep. yeah. Yep. All and, right, a, so and a good indication of that is aspirin. Aspirin in small doses is COX-1, and then hence why it does blood clotting or, let's say, uh, platelet aggregation blocking. Okay. But if you take a high enough um, aspirin, it then does its standard anti-inflammatory pain so that's a high dose aspirin. Yeah, exactly right. So it still does COX two, but just not as selective as one.
0: So we're at the proximal convoluted tubule. 65% of stuff is reabsorbed here. And this includes ions. Now, from now on, when I say ions, I'm going to specifically mean sodium, chloride, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, right? So every time I say ions, they're the five that are going to be the ones I'm referring to. Okay. So the proximal convoluted tubule, we throw back from the tube into the body, ions, those ones. We also throw back bicarbonate. We also yeah, th- so that's going to be for the acid base. Yeah. Yep. We also throw back water. We throw back amino acids. We throw back urea. Mm-hmm. And we throw back glucose. Why is this important? The last one in yeah, the Yeah, glucose. Yeah.
1: Well, glucose is a very important carbohydrate that's- um, pretty much the best way that we can make ATP in the body. So, every cell generally would like to get glucose to be able to add with oxygen to make ATP. And so, if you were to lose your glucose here into urine, you would be losing the point of eating. So, you'd be losing a lot of sugar, therefore, your ability to make ATP efficiently. But then the issue, because this becomes a problem in a condition known as diabetes, mm-hmm. particularly diabetes mellitus, and this is actually where the term comes from. Sweet like honey. Sweet. Yeah, so diabetes... My nickname diabe- is mellitus
0: in, in high school.
1: <laughs> diabetes means to, to pass through, I think. Yeah.
0: Like a sieve, I think. It like,
1: yeah, means- so it just means you are urinating a lot, but... That's, that's just diabetes, but then you can have two subcategories of diabetes, mellitus, which means sweet-like, and insipidus, which is no taste. And so if you were to not been able to reabsorb your sugar here, the glucose here, the glucose would then remain in the nephron and in the filtrate, and then it has no real ability to be reabsorbed anywhere else, and water will follow it, and you would increase urine output. So your ability to water balance would be diminished, and you would be urinated more frequently, hence called polyuria, and this would then impact your ability to water balance, but also electrolyte balance, and this is part of the problem with diabetes, at least in ac- acute
0: manifestations. Yeah, so you should, if you don't have diabetes... Or you don't hit the threshold. You, well, this is my point, is that... Um, there's only enough glucose transporters here to throw normal amounts of glucose back into the body. Do you know how much? I don't actually, but I know that, for example, if you were to drink just drink a can of Coke and a, a donut that you would pee out glucose yeah, you would, in your urine.
1: And we did this experiment back in physiology class where you would have an individual that would drink, let's say, 500 mils of just water and then you drink 500 mils of a soft drink, and the person who drank the soft drink, even though it's the same volume of fluid, they would urinate more than the, the student that drink the water. Yeah, exactly. Because even just a, a soft drink exceeds threshold of reabsorption in the PCT.
0: Yes, and this is how they determine diabetes. They tasted urine. Oh, it's sweet. How delicious. I'll have a pint of that, please. So that's the proximal tubule. At the uh, loop of Henley, at the thin descending limb, we only reabsorb back into the body water. Mm-hmm. Now, this goes back to when I interrupted you and said, don't explain. Because remember, we said this entire loop goes down into the medulla. And the length of this loop actually varies according to different animals. Mm. So animals like camels have really long loops of Henley. And desert rats. Again, your nickname <laughs> in high school. So- what what do so? What's the importance of the length of the loop of Henley relative to the fact that the thin descending limb only throws water back into the body?
1: Um, say that again. I was I zoned. <laughs> I, I zoned out. after you called me a desert rat.
0: <laughs> Explain the relevance of the length of yeah. the loop of Henley relative to the fact that that only the thin descending limb throws oh, water okay. back into the body. Yeah.
1: So the. the the length of the limb, how far it descends down basically gives the ability of the nephron to concentrate its filtrate at a greater amount. So when the the filtrate comes into the Bowman's capsule, yep. it's at a milliosmole of, what, 320 or something, which is what blood, blood plasma is. Sorry? Blood blood plasma has a milliosmole, which means yeah. stuff dissolved at, in it, right? At 290, 300 milliosmoles. Okay, yeah but as you go down the, lim- uh, the down the nephron because it's going deeper it is kind of heading into a higher concentrated area so it's kind of going into a region of the kidney that has more things dissolved in the extracellular in fluid. the extracellular fluid yeah. and this is kind of the countercurrent mechanism right and so why is, why is that important because you then have the ability
0: to make your filtrate more concentrated so generally speaking- But that's not the point. But the point is the, op- is the opposite. Well, not the opposite, but what's happening in the other direction is that the longer the limb, the more chance you have of throwing water back into the body. Yeah. So maintaining hydration right. and the byproduct of maintaining hydration, so pulling water out of the filtrate, is you concentrate the urine. And so,
1: like you said, animals that have generally moved out of the water onto land because we're not having got water in abundance anymore- we need to be better at balancing the water in our body. And so animals who have more scarcity of water, they're going to have generally a longer loop of Henley. So like you said, all the animals that are like desert living animals, they're going to have a really long loop. I think our ability is to get to 1,200 milliosmoles, but I'm guessing some of those animals might get well beyond 3,000. And so like the desert rat, as I knew, it doesn't actually (laughs) secrete – Fluid anymore as urine, it just pees crystals. out crystals. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about camels,
0: which hippies sell for like forty dollars a pot. Uh, that was a joke. Right. So, right. Um, as lamps. So, okay, that's the that's the thin descending limb. Then the thick ascending limb, we reabsorb ions. So those five that I said and bicarbonate. And that's interestingly
1: then called the diluting limb because you're pulling all the salt out of it. Yeah. So, you're actually making it more dilute. Yep. Even though you're not pulling the water out of it, but you're pulling all the salt out of it. Or at least, what is it? Chloride, two chlorides, and a sodium. Is it potassium as well? This is important because this is one of the most important or most common diuretics that work at this particular part of the nephron.
0: Yep. Um, then at the distal convoluted tubule, you reabsorb ions, bicarbonate, and water. Uh, and then at the collecting duct, sodium, chloride, bicarbonate water and urea. So you can see all the different things that we're throwing back into the body, but we also are at these different areas secreting, actively secreting things that we go, oh, we actually don't want that in the blood. Let's throw that into the tubule. So it's sort of bypassing the glomerular filtration and just getting thrown straight from the peritubular capillaries, those capillaries that are wrapping around the tubules and chucking them back in. So, for example, at the proximal convoluted tubule, we're throwing back into the tubules to be peed out urea, uric acid, creatinine, hydrogen ions, various water-soluble drugs, and ammonia. Uh, at the uh, thin descending limb, we can throw urea back in. And I think with
1: urea, I could be wrong here, but I think urea actually sits, rather than go back in the blood, I think it just sits more in the extracellular cent- extra environment to create the gradients.
0: Yeah, I think it's a big part of that gradient. Uh, nothing really gets reabsorbed at the thick ascending limb, but at the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting ducts, we tend to re uh, secrete, sorry, not reabsorb, secrete. We tend to secrete hydrogen ions, drugs, and ammonia. So again, the things that you like, we don't want. If it's too acidic, let's throw these hydrogen ions out. If we need to pee it out and get rid of it, let's throw these drugs out, water-soluble, and let's throw this ammonia out because it can elevate and become toxic. Yeah. So at the end of all this, at the end of playing around with all these different uh, substances and fluids, at the very end of this collecting duct, we will drip, 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 literally drip out filtrate, which was probably now you could call urine because you can't play around with it anymore, really. What you're saying is gallon was right. In a way, yeah. So in a day, 1.8 odd litres, It's going to be dripping at the bottom of this collecting duct. Now, here's the thing. Let's go into the microanatomy of the kidneys, right? Because now the collecting duct moves from the cortex into the medulla. And if you look at the medulla of the kidney, it's made up of like eight to 10 upside down pyramids called renal pyramids where the base of the pyramid actually forms the barrier of the cortex to the medulla, Mm -hmm. right? And then the tip of the pyramid called the papilla, which means nipple, This is where the urine drips, drips, drips. drips. So the collecting ducts actually move down the renal pyramids and drip into these little cups, which we call a calyx. And you've got a minor calyx at the bottom of each pyramid, which then merge into a major calyx. And then the major calyces merge together into the renal pelvis, which is like a big bowl. And this is where the urine again accumulates and drips down from the renal pelvis into the ureters which then move down into the bladder for storage. Brilliant. Your yes. turn. Okay. What happens in the bladder? What, well, tell us about the bladder. What do we know about the bladder? How it's, much can it store? A, it's a muscle bag. That's what I again, call it. Again, stop, stop <laughs> highlighting all my old nicknames.
1: So the urinary bladder, because there's other bladders in the body, but the urinary bladder yep. um, is in the pelvis. It's, it's just a, a one single bag. Right. Uh, it is, but it receives um, two ureters. Great. And this is in a trigone region. So it's a, basically all the inside of the bladder looks rough. Part of the reason why it looks rough is because it has a type of epithelium in it or part of it that is what we call a transitional or umbrella. You like it. umbrella cells, I think they're called? Yep. Or umbrella tissue. So a bit like how an umbrella would look when it's closed versus when it opens up.
0: Fold, folded, yeah. Yeah. uneven. And then once it it's starts stretching,
1: stretch it changes in its uh, morphology, let's say. So w- it's probably a bit similar to the stomach in a way, like the rugae. The, rugue. the rugue. what? The rugae. So most of the bladder is rough, but there is a trigone, which is smooth. Where's the okay. trigone? The trigone is kind of, I think, at the... Of, um, Don't point,
0: point it on yourself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the dorsal inferior aspect of the okay. bladder. Yeah. and so Back and down. On the, the base of the trigone, so it's a bit like a pyramid as well. Yep. At the base, the two corners, that's where the ureters would be coming in. Gotcha. And then kind of at the point of it would that's be more at urethral. the urethra. Gotcha. Or the okay. exit point of the bladder. Yep. Okay, so bl- not blood. Urine will be dripping down the urethra. Yeah, hopefully not blood. Dripping down, probably with a combination of gravity and some degree of contraction, because the ureters do have um, muscles muscle. in it, yeah. and that becomes the problem with having stones in there. the The muscles are contracting against a stone, and that becomes the visceral painful sensation. Yep. So whenever you st- st- stretch a a hollow um, um, tube, a muscle. Uh, Visceral, a visceral muscle becomes highly painful.
0: Yes, that's the main thing. You could cut it, and it may not necessarily be as painful as stretching it.
1: But yeah, that's right. So then the bladder, within the bladder, the urine starts to fill it up, and so there would be.
0: How much do we know how what the capacity of the bladder is?
1: Probably about eight hundred mils. Okay. So as it's, I could beat that. As it's starting to fill, what would happen? Is Well, actually, I've spoke about the epithelium, which lines the internal part of the bladder, which is where the urine would be. Yep. But a big part of the wall of the bladder would be uh, smooth muscle, particularly the term we use is the detrusor muscle. Detrusor. The detrusor. Detrusor. That's right. Yep. And so as the bladder is getting stretched because it's been filled with urine, it would be relating some sensory signals that would be taken from the muscle wall Back to the spinal cord. Yep. Specifically, the sacral segments, which is S2, 3, 4. Mm-hmm. S2, 3, 4 keeps urine from the floor, off the floor. That makes sense. You probably also do poo as well, because it's the same kind of. Might as well, hey. <laughs> anyway, um, so it's taken to a part of you. This is a kind of a micturition reflex, which is only at the spinal cord level. And so as the sensory signal is increasing in frequency, so as your blood is getting expanded and getting larger, which is filling up with urine, the sensory signals going back to the spinal cord will be increasing in frequency. And as a result, there's going to be motor output being taken straight back. And this is- Hence a, what's a reflex are. A reflex. So it doesn't have to go to the brain to govern this. Yeah. Okay. And so the, the motor response back is parasympathetic. All right. Okay. And the, the response is to do kind of two main things, is to contract the detrusor more, so to decrease the volume, which would be increasing the pressure, which would just Squirt it out. amplify this reflex more, but also to relax kind of the base and then the first part of the... Urethra. urethra yeah, it's the urethra sphincter. So yeah. there's two main sphincters that we have on the urethra. Yeah, Dr. We, Matt and Dr. Mike. We have the internal... yeah which is not, it's unconscious. And then the external, which is conscious. Okay. Okay. So it will start this parasympathetic drive. Not in itself.
0: It's just we can, we have conscious control over it is what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So the parasympathetic drive here would be contracting the tritrusor and relax and starting to relax the internal sphincter. Yeah. And this would start to kind of notify you consciously now. Peace coming. I better get to the toilet because when i go to the toilet i can then relax my external sphincter.
0: Question i get but, a lot from the students but luckily, oh okay, go. Can you burst your bladder f- by holding urine? Well, there was that we got that on abc. Dutch gentleman, was it was he dutch?
1: I don't was know. Was he an astronomer or something that oh, apparently um yeah, yeah. or danish? Yeah, get his name. Well, anyway, keep going. Ty – Ty
0: Tycho bra- Brahi. Something like that, yeah. Yeah.
1: So apparently, um, legends suggest that his bladder exploded because he was eating in the, amongst the royal family, and you weren't allowed to leave. It was
0: Tycho Brahe, Danish astronomer, uh, a no? He was known for his strong bladder, <laughs> right? Okay. And he earned that reputation. But I think he may have got a UTI. I don't think it burst. It I don't it. think you can burst it. No, I don't think you could because. Its ability to stretch would probably far outweigh your ability to hold on. Correct. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll, go, we'll, go, we'll go
1: with that legend. Yes. Let me finish it. So he was eating with the Danish presumably the Danish royal family and you weren't was let, he eating Danish? You weren't allowed to leave the table unless until they left first. Yes. And so probably drinking a lot of fluid, probably yeah. alcohol, which is a diuretic. Yep. And legend says that his bladder overstretched and burst. And then probably he-
0: just got an infected UTI. Yep. But anyway- okay, So I so think the
1: answer would be no. You yeah. couldn't burst your bladder from at least that. Okay.
0: So urine now has uh, gone through the unconscious one where it's like, oh, I need to wee, it relaxes, then goes to the second one, which is the second gate, which says, I might just ask Matt if it's okay for me to pee now because it might not be socially acceptable. And you go, no, not yet, I'm still in the lecture. And then you go to the toilet and you now have conscious control.
1: Yeah, so your pons has another... Well, the ducks
0: are. (laughs) Back to the ducks, (laughs) I get
1: it. Another... (laughs) <laughs> PONS, no no D. Okay. P-O-N-S. The PONS, wow. the pons is which is the, the bridge of your brainstem. Yep. This has a micturation center, a it's storage a- center, and a urinating center. Right. And so the storage center is generally your ability to overrule I mean, it's got your other reflex. Parts. It's
0: not just there for that's, urine control. That's not it? the
1: only part of the book. Br- okay. That's right. But you have a storage center that says, hey, hold on to this at the point. Right. Okay. You're on a bus. Yeah. Or you're in a um, Dr. Mike's lecture.
0: Yeah, that's so right. So
1: hold on to it, please. So the Pontine storage center. <laughs> okay. So it's held on. But then when you're ready to, to pass urine, it then activates the mictuation center.
0: Right. Which and is parasympathetic, sympathetic.
1: Well at this point this is high order, but
0: Oh, okay. So it's conscious control yeah. over motor. So this so would be somatic.
1: Muscle. This would be somatic motor. Right. And so it will be controlling on the external sphincters. Which is skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle. Right. That's right. And so then you go to the toilet. Sit down, pull your pants. T- <laughs> sit down.
0: Okay. Hey, 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 whatever. Whatever.
1: <laughs> and then re- relax. It, then re- relax, relax. your relax your um external sphincter and then urine is able to be passed.
0: Great. Great. So
1: a few things there.
0: Do you sit down on the urinal. <laughs> Defecate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um Ugh. so a few things that can go wrong here. Yeah. If this whole uh, system yep. is not well coordinated, yes, it can result in incontinence. Sure. Okay. At what
0: point? Like there's what a couple
1: of there's a couple of different types of incontinence. There's urge urge incontinence, yeah, which is basically detrusor muscle. I don't know what would you call it. it just contracts. Oh, hy- yeah. Hyperactive almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it kind of hyperreflexive in a way. So it doesn't do what it should. It doesn't expand and contract under voluntary control. It just does it when it. Wishes to. That, sure. That's an urge incontinence, so you will just pee at random points. Yep. Another one is uh, stress incontinence. Yep. So this is usually happens for women post-given birth. Yep. Later in life, not just well, – it probably would impact shortly yep. after pregnancy. But essentially the you have weakness of the pelvic floor and that's going to impact the external sphincter. Right. And so any kind of increased pressure on in the bladder, that would be increased intra abdominal pressure, so laughing, coughing, uh, sneezing, pushes too much pressure on the detrusor, yeah. and then you're not having got that control of the external sphincter. Even just jumping,
0: jumping yeah. up and down.
1: Yeah, exercise. So that would be – to counter that, you do the keg, kegel, kegel do exercises. I, what's that? Pelvic floor exercises. Pel- yeah, where you kind okay. of hold and relax, hold and relax. Yep. And then the last one is overflow, which is the, the way that the bladder can empty has been diminished, the most common – cause of this would be prostate issues. Cool. And so well, not cool, but yeah, the horrible. prostate has enlarged and that
0: restricts the outflow of the urethra. Yeah. So interestingly, the prostate actually, as a tissue, goes around the tube. Mm. So, and it grows inward, yeah. right? It doesn't yeah. necessarily get out, like it, it changes its feel. From, I mean, hence why they do a digital rectal examination because it's right next to where the rectum is. But the, as the tissue changes, it grows inward, not outward. It mm-hmm. just feels harder, so yeah. you can't necessarily feel a larger um, prostate per se. Even though you could, it feels harder and bumpy, so it changes its 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 feel basically. But as it grows in, it can uh, obstruct the yeah. the urethra, so you
1: can't empty your bladder. Therefore, it overf- overflows or overfills, mm-hmm. and then it will eventually overflow, and you get the incontinence. incontinence. Yeah, there was something else I was going to say, but oh, just as a story, as a yeah, it's a, a story that I was told by one of my colleagues. Yeah. So she is a nurse and she worked for some, I think it was, she worked in prison, I think. Right. And she had one particular gentleman or either a person came from prison and was having these UTIs. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like That's, recurrent. Yeah. Okay. And so what she did was she put a catheter in. Sure. So is a tube up through the urethra. Blow, blow it up. Into the bladder, but then blow a balloon up, which helps it stay in there. Yeah, and And allows for
0: you just to drip out.
1: That's right. So she kept on putting the urethra up, inflating it, but then it would just fall out. Right. And so she didn't know what was happening. So she just kept on changing to larger and smaller
0: catheters. Sure.
1: But but just didn't work. So So the
0: balloon wasn't blowing up? No, it was blowing
1: up, up, but then it just deflated. Right. And so they x-rayed them, and they found that the person had – Stuck a syringe, like a um, needle, a needle, but like a syringe needle, a, an insulin needle. Oh, up, up the urethra. Oh boy, because they wanted to smuggle drugs into. Oh boy, prison. Oh god. And so it kind of got stuck halfway in the bladder. It was popping the balloon. Yeah, popping the balloon. Popping the cath.
0: Yeah, oh jeez. Yeah. And that was the
1: cause of the urethra. And oh, they,
0: the UTI. So and and they did not bother telling anyone. I don't
1: think they wanted to how admit you, to
0: it. How do you get a needle out? Yeah. Oh, I don't want to know. Horrible. And
1: another, one, same lady, another one, she also- Same nurse or same, same patient? Nurse, same same okay. nurse. Yeah. Another, another gentleman came in with a UTI, a really bad one. She said, oh, he was a bit weird about it. Like she, when they were talking, taking the history, wouldn't admit to a lot of things. Um, and then I think they, I don't know how they got to this point, but again, they x-rayed it and they found um, skeletal, <laughs> skeletal remains in the urethra. What? And he had put- a gecko up his penis. All oh, right, that's enough. Okay, it so <laughs> died and that was a call. So of we are
0: going to now read <laughs> listener mail before I vomit all over my iPad. Um, that is that is the renal system, but we're gonna read listener mail and we've got an just probably one of the best listener mails. Uh, one of many great uh, emails. So <clears throat> this is from Dalton. Dalton, firstly, thank you. The subject says, an actual fact, you guys are the best. I like that. That is a great start. So, hello, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. Greetings from Washington State. Where's uh, that? Uh, in America. Which side? Um, one part of the country. West Coast. West Coast. Okay. Uh, I've only been to the US three times, uh, but they've got too many states for me to remember. Uh, hopefully, I won't come off as a stalker, but... I know what the inside of your house looks like. No, wait a minute. <laughs> I, hopefully I won't come off as a stalker, maybe just a fanboy. Yes, it's all good, don't stress. Just needed to say a big thank you. I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I decided to switch career paths and go into the medical field. I took my first ever AMP class in a condensed summer quarter last year and your videos were the only way I survived. That makes us feel awesome. Uh, not only that, but they helped me discover that I adore anatomy and physiology. Love it. AMP2 was even more difficult, but I managed to get a 4.0. Awesome. Thanks to us. Or thanks guessing to you. I'm guessing,
1: guessing that's different to how it is in Australia.
0: Out of five. 4.0 out of five. Yeah. We've got seven. Yeah. Because I was yeah. going to say 4.2 isn't overly good. No, 4.0. No, no, no. But f- no, this is fine. 4.0 is very good, uh, which is extra impressive, especially for someone who is a, a bit of a dullard. I don't think so. Um, I guess you insert an obligatory comparison joke there, Dr. Matt. Even though he is incredibly awesome, he's not uh, funny. No, he's not. And almost makes embryology seem interesting. Almost. Almost.
1: But not quite there. I'll take it as a compliment. Uh,
0: Anyway, fast forward a year and now it's my second quarter tutoring. So teaching anatomy and physiology at the local college. That's awesome, Dalton. Um, Running the lectures and ironically I'm helping teach a class that I thought... I was too dumb to understand and I think I'm okay at it. I reckon you're awesome at it because I can tell you're passionate. Your videos helped me get to this point. As a side result, I've caught the teaching bug. So I plan on becoming a professor of anatomy and physiology now. So you quite literally changed my life. Greatest parasocial relationship ever. Thanks once again, Dalton. Lovely. Is, isn't Lovely. that awesome? Honestly, thank you so much, Dalton. That is just is why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. I love it. Love Makes it. Makes it worth it. Do you have any uh, any listener emails, Matt?
1: I've got an email from David. So David says, hi, guys. I just hi, li- David. I just listened to the podcast on heart disease and while it was a bit of a marathon, it was excellent and very informative. Cool. I was wondering if you were able to do an episode on short-chain fatty acids and particularly in butyrate. Right, right, right. So basically he's asking as an anti-inflammatory agent, yep. could it be something that could be used in the future?
0: What do you think? Interesting. Uh let us have a look into it so butyrate is important it's an important metabolic short chain fatty acid feeds can feed into the Krebs cycle is also from memory produced by a lot of the gut flora uh and in the large colon
1: yeah in response to
0: fiber right yep so again important because it's part of metabolic processes and signaling like you said uh, let us have a look into it and I'll see if the evidence is, the, one of the reasons why we haven't really done an episode on gut flora and so forth is because one, it's relatively new and the evidence just keeps changing all the time. Not like going back and forth or anything or, or um, you know, going against previous evidence. It's just, if we did a podcast on it, it would, a month later, it would be outdated that's, it. That's the only reason why we haven't really done a gut flora episode, but we will. We will, believe us. Yeah, it's complicated. It is complicated. So thank you for that. We'll
1: probably get, get an expert on for that.
0: Yeah, I'll be happy to do it. <laughs> so we've got an email from Carla. Uh, Carla says, Thank you, Dr. Mike and Dr. Matt. Look who came first there, Dr. Mike, uh, for your great videos. I use them as a resource for my students. Uh, it makes it so much easier to explain difficult neuro concepts to them. Uh, Carla, who is an ocup- occupational therapist, thank you so much. Again, this is why we do what we do. This makes us so happy. Um, if you only listen to the podcast and not the video, go to our YouTube channel, subscribe, like, comment, give us reviews, tell us... That the stuff we're doing is useful and helpful. And if you do want to send us an email, go to drmatt@drmike.com.au and through the website you can send us an email and we can read it out. Matt, what else do you have?
1: Email from Jacinta. So she says, Good day, I'm Jacinta from east, the eastern part of Nigeria. So can hello, I- Jacinta. She's completed a master's degree in exercise physiology. That's very impressive. Nice. Um, she loves watching our videos and she says that we are very good at what we do. Now, she... It's basically requesting whether we are likely to produce some online material. Okay. Which she can interact with. So I think basically- Online courses. So I think, yeah, that's right. So I think basically here we are hoping to.
0: No, we will. We are producing online So CPDs or short- Cheap. Yep. What would you say? Six hour-ish in- Max. Duration. We're going to be creating short courses that will go from one hour to six hours- different ones, Uh, and the cost of them will be relevant to the length of time, but they will be affordable. That's important to us. And they will be available on our website. Absolutely.
1: So Hopefully by the end of the year, right,
0: we'll start to have a few roll out. Yeah, and we will advertise them. So we'll let everybody know on the YouTube channel and on the podcast when they become available. Uh, My final email here uh, is from Kendall uh kendall says i love the podcast and have been an avid listener for over a year now thank you so much kendall would be uh interested in putting together a description of what happens to the body when someone is bitten by one of australia's venomous snakes that's very interesting uh the chemical cocktails have varied and brown uh, snake and potentially devastating effects uh yeah one of the worst or the worst
1: no, i think there's one more really i always forget this one
0: tiger that would be up
1: there as well though
0: red belly black
1: that okay. One, one. I'd be interested in hearing about type the protein. N, southeast Taipan, type, type yeah, I think. Down in
0: Victoria. Uh, I'll be interested uh, in hearing about the protein interactions and how the anti-venoms work. That's, I'd be very interested in doing a podcast episode on that. I would be good to get a. I tell you why I wouldn't want to do it. Because it opens the door... That's true. opens the door to you doing comparative anatomy. And I just can't stomach that. But, okay. no, I think we, I think I like that. I really like Maybe that. Maybe we could get it like a, a
1: toxiologist on.
0: Sorry? Toxic- a toxicologist. toxicologist.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, but it'd be cool to have someone who deals with this in, in ED or something, right?
0: That would be cool. As long as I don't bring a snake into the studio because I am, oh, yeah, quite afraid of snakes. I'm not afraid of snakes. I just don't want to be cautious, bitten by cautious. one. I think we're all cautious. I mean, living in Australia, I used to live in Victoria- we had brown snakes everywhere. Yeah, they're dangerous. Yeah, man. They can be big too. Okay, I mean, d- Queensland, we've got pythons and there was a python. Python or python? What do python. you say? Python. Python. So I was, this is while I was doing my PhD. I'd finished in the lab and I went out the front um, to sit on a big log. Adiposum. I did what? An adiposum. No, <laughs> I know that you're trying to ruin my... <laughs> ruined my stories. No, I'm sitting on this log and I'm just reading it like a journal article that I printed off. And you realise it was a python. <laughs> I, I literally felt something touch the back of my like bum, top of my bum, lower back. And I turn around, giant python, like seven foot tail hit me. And I reckon in one step, I jumped across the entire two lane road to go back to the labs. Oh, anyway, I had to change my underpants that day, Matthew. So you had a, a micturition reflex. Yeah, and the back too. So <laughs> any more emails? S2, 3, 4. St- stops me pooing like, on a snake. I guess it didn't work.
1: Okay, we've got a final email from Nualia. How would you pronounce that? Nuala. Nuala. Tona. So she is from America, cool. Georgia. Nice. And she is doing. She's doing Georgia? radiology. Yep. And she was just wondering if she was to do um, some A and P with us, which would be actually with you. yeah w- Whether that would be recognised in America?
0: That yeah, would in be what, in what way?
1: I think if they were to, if she was to take
0: um, or oh, one of our online yeah. courses that we make, uh, it depends on what you mean by recognised. So uh, accredited? No, uh, we wouldn't be able to get accredited for the stuff that we do here in the US. Meaning. Um, would you be able to take that and use it as credit yes. for application of... Whether well, uh, we'd recognise that. That, would, that uh, would be more their question, all right? Yeah, you would have to ask the university or, or the college whether they recognise the content that we create as credit. Um, there are some governing bodies that we could approach to see if uh, you, uh, students can get prior learning or credits um, or CPD points for engaging with our work so you could ask the college um but uh, there's nothing that we can explicitly do from our end necessarily to be able to do that unfortunately so Thank you. If you want to, uh, if you want us to read out your emails or just contact us, please send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com, or you can go into the website, au. Uh, send us an email, but we've got the transcripts for the podcasts there. Uh, you can go to the YouTube channel and view and watch these podcasts and 600 other videos about how the human body works, and you can contact us on social media at drmattodorovic.com. Uh, and that's basically it and you can leave a comment subscribe say hi do all those wonderful things if you want to become a member seven dollars per month early access ad free and we can do special content for you maybe you can send us an email say can you do a podcast episode on this i'm a member and i'll go hey great idea and we'll do it nice figurines nice figurines that match us So, so so i'm harry you're harry and i'm lloyd from dumb and dumber so there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Have and a wonderful,
1: wonderful. Write bed. in and tell us which mnemonic you preferred: a wet bed or Humpty Dumpty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall.